This uh-huh. is hell. Okie dokie. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. This week's live four-hour show is being broadcast from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now in podcast in its entirety shortly after at thisishell.com, as well as broadcast in an abbreviated one-hour form on Chicago's South Side Lumpen Radio and Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, both those programs being on Sunday mornings. During this week's This Is Hell, we'll talk about the keywords of capitalism and how they've changed who we are. We'll learn how the leftist press in the U.S. abandoned Brazil's left during the coup that overthrew Dilma Rousseff, as well as during the run-up to the election of a fascist. We'll reveal how President Trump may not be a fascist. He's just a patrimonialist, and we'll find out what that means. We'll discuss Russia beyond Putin, and that's something Russians are already doing as term limits keep Putin from running for re-election again in 2024. And we'll hear from our man on all things beer. We'll be here to talk about beer in our annual final segment of the year here on This Is Hell. Not to fear, it's the year in beer. Of course, we'll have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, in, and we'll tell you about that in a moment. And I'll tell you what we figured out about our world around us over the past six months here on This Is Hell. I shared my review of the first six months that I mentioned on air back during the first week of July, uh, right around fireworks time, which now seems like forever ago. I remember somebody brought delicious deviled eggs and that I got drunk. And Alex will be sharing the entire review of the entire year before the new year. Our first guest this week looks deep into the words we use in the era of capitalism, whatever you want to call this era of capitalism. And as U.S. and Latin American literature and culture scholar John Patrick Levy, author of Keywords, The New Language of Capitalism, will argue that debate over what to call this stage of capitalism is as pointless as it is wrong. Instead, John focuses on what the words we use really mean and how they can affect the way we view ourselves and the values we have in whatever you want to call our time. Find out more about Keywords at keywordsforcapitalism.com. John is an associate professor of English at Wayne State University. His most recent book prior to Keywords is 2016's A Cultural History of Underdevelopment, Latin America, in the U.S. imagination. We'll start this week's second hour of This Is Hell with our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Brian Mir. Brian co-authored the Telesur article, How the U.S. Left Failed Brazil. Why did the U.S. left media bash a successful Democratic Socialist Party during a right-wing coup? Which is something Brian was wondering out loud on This Is Hell over the last six years, if not more. We really could not figure out why the left in the U.S. was dumping on the Workers' Party, which had such great success in bringing people out of poverty, providing health care, and improving education. We just didn't get why the U.S. left didn't get Brazil. I mean, sure, we expected the left bashing from the New York Times, but Jacobin and The Guardian will try to wrap our minds around why the U.S. left Brazil's left when we talk to Brian, who is an editor of Voices of the Brazilian Left, a collection of interviews with Brazil's left who are rarely, if ever, interviewed by, let alone mentioned in, the northern media. Brian is also an editor at Brazil Wire and a freelance writer and producer whose work regularly appears at Telesur. Brian also has his own weekly web TV show in Brazil for some big lefty news medium called Brazil 24-7. Following our report from Brian in Brazil, is 
Donald Trump a fascist? To be honest, I really don't know. But our second guest in our second hour, hour will take a shot at it when we speak with sociologist Dylan Riley, author of the New Left Review article, What is Trump? I mean, Trump's not Hitler or Mussolini, right? So he can't be fascist, can he? It's not like he's friendly with the more militaristic wing of U.S. politics and government and their imperial ambitions. It's not like he's a pal of the surveillance state. He's not trying to get the entire 1% on his side. He's not even consolidating his own party. So if Trump is a fascist, he's a really, really lousy one at that. In fact, what might be keeping Trump from being a fascist is he doesn't have enough supporters, and the ones he does have are too incompetent to be fascist. So quit going around giving fascists a bad name by saying Trump is one of them. If not a fascist, then we'll find out what Trump is when we talk to Dylan, who is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. After we've talked about the pernicious language of capitalism, the left turning its back on Brazil's left and Trump not being a fascist, we're off to Russia to talk about something beyond Vladimir Putin. We'll speak with Tony Wood, author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War. When we only focus on Putin, when we believe Putin is Russia and Russia is Putin, we ignore what Russia really is, and what it is is scary as hell. Imagine, if you will, a world where capitalism, the market, takes precedent over everything, where all you have is a fake democracy to give the illusion that things are just and fair, but all your policies are about profits first, and people are, well, definitely not first. Wait, that's exactly what Republicans and neoliberals and Clinton Democrats want. So instead of focusing on a single person in Putin, it's time we pay attention to the capitalist system they have in place and consider exactly how stable it is because when Russia blows again, there's going to be another revolution. We get all learned up on the real Russia beyond Putin when we have a conversation with Tony, who is a member of the editorial board of New Left Review, and he's also author of 2007's Chechnya, The Case for Independence. We'll begin our fourth and final hour of This Is Hell in 2018, the same way we begin the fourth and final hour every year here on This Is Hell. And that's a live in-studio report from our beer correspondent, Michael Roper, the co-proprietor of the Hopley 5148 North Clark Street, right at the border of the Andersonville neighborhood in Chicago, as this is the final live broadcast of This Is Hell this year. It's time for Michael's special annual report. It's the year in beer. And this year in beer included hundreds of breweries closing, a giant brewery equipment supplier going under, which is having ripple effects throughout the industry, including adversely affecting hop growers. Alternative beverages are challenging beers. And we'll talk about pot beer. Plus, I'll reveal my beer of the year, and we'll see if Michael has one of his own. Michael's Bar, the Hop Leaf, has received many accolades, including being a winner of a 2016 Time Out Chicago Bar Award as one of the city's best bars. We'll wrap up this week's Hell the way we wrap up most editions of This Is Hell, and that's with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff can't win for losing and can't lose for winning. All that stuff plus rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on this week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? Uh, so is an eight ball like a unit of measurement? Yes, it is. You know what it you know what it means, right? No, I have no idea. Oh, it's <laughs> it's one eighth, one eighth of an ounce. That is an eight ball. But it's only for coke. Right, but it's only for coke. Exactly. I don't know. 
I don't get that either, dude. I'm, I'm not explaining uh, the context behind this but conversation, I will tell everyone. You, it happened before we started the show. Uh, when somebody comes up to you and asks you for an eight ball of Coke, the answer is always, what, Alex? No. Just keep that in mind. It's a little tip from me to you, and now you know. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, soup enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is... A banana shake with honey. Damn, this is the best hangover cure ever. Uh, while we have featured bananas in many ways as a hangover cure in the past, we never suggested any combination of bananas and honey. As something called Times Now News reports on <laughs> com reports on their article, Winter Hangover, cure your hangover with these easy home remedies. Bananas help to restore minerals like potassium that the body loses due to alcohol intake, while honey and the fructose present in it aid the metabolism and digestion of alcohol in the body. Honey is also a natural sweetener that restores the blood sugar loss because of alcohol. So that makes this week's hangover cure a banana shake with honey. Which doesn't sound like a very wintry hangover cure at all, unless you winter in Australia. So I wanted to find out if that website was an Australian website, and it wasn't. So I don't really get how that's a winter hangover cure. But my tip would be don't just use any honey, like clove honey or something. Uh, See if you can find Manuka honey, Manuka honey, because that is amazing for all sorts of hangover cures as well as your throat and any kind of problems you have from the night before. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. This is the final live broadcast of This is Hell for 2018. And as such, and as we do every year, it's time to take inventory of what we've learned. Now, we learned so much on any, during any given year here on This Is Hell that we've been forced to split everything we've learned into a biannual report. We used to do it once a year, and now we do it every six months. So following this year's first six months, I assessed everything we learned up until then, and I believe Alex will be sharing that list on social media, uh, I believe, next week. So you can go here the first half of this online and combined into one full-length, one-year assessment of what we learned here on This Is Hell. But since that half-year catalog of the scary stuff we've introduced to you here on This Is Hell, a lot more has been learned here on the show. In the last six months, we've learned, in order, the new left in France has the same old problems as the old left. Black farmers actually settled the U.S. Great Lakes region, experiencing equality and freedom that was, wasn't was wiped out until resurgent racism in the early 20th century. Who needs to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border when Americans have already built a wall of indifference between themselves and the rest of the world? The, electric, the Electronic Frontier Foundation is a corporate front for Google and Facebook. A recycler is in prison for trying to save us from electronic waste. The city of Flint's toxic water crisis can happen to any city unless federal and state officials reconsider their responsibility to local governments. The end of civilization is coming soon, which means it's time to consider what we want the new civilization to look like. A localization revolution is happening right now, and it might be the alternative system we've been waiting for. Degenerate artists are fighting fascism in the age of Trump. Human activity is accelerating changes, evolutionary changes, and we better start learning how to live with the new nature before it's too late. 
The militarized, corporatized sports industry is in stark contrast to the black athlete's heritage of standing up to racism and injustice. Violence and catastrophe are the only two ways inequality has been successfully addressed, which sucks because we really need more equality. Government surveillance is everywhere and it's growing, and unless we do something about it, and right away, we'll have a mass surveillance system that tracks our every mo- Wait, too late. An anti-capitalist science fiction comedy can be a very, very entertaining movie. There's a red-green revolution taking place, not the horrible Canadian comedian, but a social-ecological revolution. Being black and being trans have a lot more in common than you think, and those commonalities can reveal to us the flexibility of terms we use to exclude others. A new prostitution ordinance in Chicago resembles anti-prostitution ordinances across the country that even anti-trafficking groups oppose. The Western media refused to cover Brazil's coup until it was too late. Art and money have a weird relationship that reveals we may need to get rid of both, art and money. There is a new revolutionary manifesto that will not sit well with liberals here in the U.S., Black radicalism may be the only thing that can save us. Capitalism can no longer afford its addiction to energy. Real estate speculation is disastrous for Detroit's neighborhoods. Anti-authoritarianism has been labeled a mental disorder in the U.S. Voter suppression is destroying our democracy. Quality and accessible child care is not a priority in the U.S. Europe is making their border crisis the world's border crisis. Protesters in the U.S. are going after the people profiting from abusive immigration policies. The U.S. has a very, very sense, deadly sense of discrimination toward the obese. Neoliberalism is turning us all into really, really horrible human beings. There's ongoing and targeted abuse of black militants in U.S. prisons. The jury's still out on Mexico's new president. Housing discrimination still persists in the U.S. Brazil elected a fascist. If you really want immigration reform, you've got to abolish ICE. A corporate centrist group is working real hard to erase discussions of gender, class, and race from U.S. politics. Lots of voter suppression happened on Election Day here in the States. What's the point in voting when both parties suck and suck in ways that will surprise you. Austerity imposed on Greece has actually led to increasing Greece's debt, the opposite of what it was supposed to do. Cuba's working on a new constitution. Capitalism is avoiding being blamed for environmental destruction, like the massive decline in the number of wild animals on our planet. We learned the truth about the migrant caravan here on This Is Hell this year. We revealed the links between cops and white supremacists. We dug deep into our misunderstanding of black history. We did an autopsy on the alleged death of the American dream. We tried to figure out just what Africa means within our imagination. We found out that the migrant caravan is a revolution in organizing that the establishment media just can't wrap its head around. Localization and municipalism sound great, but what happens if your local municipality is full of a bunch of fascist jerks, and co-ops are awesome too, but how well do they address a community's larger economic challenges? Being a black intellectual 
in a world ruled by white gatekeepers who only want to discuss the tragedy of American or of African American life. Well, that must suck. Debate is stupid and self-care does not actually care for yourself. Anyone who tells you France's yellow vest movement is about fuel taxes is wrong. We need to talk about rape. The escalating human and financial costs of the post-9/11 wars means more death and destruction in our future. Pistachios might lead to a war with Iran, and we need to talk about suicide. And this week, capitalism has changed our values and who we are. Let leftist press and the U.S. abandoned Brazil's left during the coup. And President Trump may not be a fascist. He's just a patrimonialist, whatever that is. Russia is far more than just being about Putin. And all of that is why, in 2018, this is hell. And this week's question from hell is... What's that scented candle you just lit? What's that scented candle you just lit? Our reply is read on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a copy of a book we are not featuring on This Is Hell this year. Former Brazil President Lula da Silva's Truth Will Prevail, Why I Have Been Condemned. Again, the question from hell is, what's that scented candle you just lit? Leave your responses right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, well, I just told you, but we'll also have all that, plus a moment of truth when Jeff can't win for losing and can't lose for winning. Rotten history, listener uh, feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. I'll tell you what's happening with us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, the question from hell. We have some listeners to thank for supporting and sharing This Is Hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of the show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. When we do a close reading of the keywords of capitalism, what is revealed is the frightening notion of capitalism's impact on our everyday lives. Here to help us look deep into the vocabulary of the market, U.S. and Latin American literature and culture scholar John Patrick Leary is author of Keywords, the New Language of Capitalism. Welcome to This Is Hell. Hi, thanks for having me on. Great having you on the show. Now, people can find out more about Keywords at Keywords for capitalism.com. But is this book out yet? I saw that it was supposed to be released in early December, and now I saw an early January release date. How can people get your book? Uh, well, they, the best way to get it now for your uh, holiday gift-giving <laughs> needs is to go to Haymarket Books website, where they have a 50% off sale, so you can get it. Uh, they, they ship it, and it's cheaper there, and uh, Amazon won't have it until January, I don't think. Oh, I see. So you can you can already get it through Haymarket. You just can't get it through Amazon or some other place. Okay. Because right, if right. there's anybody out there who is an editor or who is a writer or who is even just a reader, this is a great book because I know that those kinds of people really like to dig deep and have close readings of uh, words and dig deep into the vocabulary of things and what they mean. And you write that language, Ambrose Beers tells us, cannot be trusted. And the sweeter it sounds, the less we should trust it. Your book is about the language of 21st cap- uh, century capitalism. How much do we trust the language of capitalism? How discerning are we when it comes to the language of capitalism? Are we quick to accept and adapt it? Or are we skeptical? Uh, well, um, I think 
I mean, some, the answer is some people are skeptical and some people are quick to adapt it. I mean, one thing that my book kind of uh, addresses, one kind of conundrum is the, the question of like what uh, what is actually new about the new language of capitalism and what is um, uh, what's much older, what's uh, what has uh, continued from past forms of hierarchy and inequality and exploitation and so forth. Um, and identifying what makes our moment unique or, or not unique is not an easy task in part because, you know, we're living in it. So we don't have a lot of perspective on it. Uh, but also because the language that we have to understand and describe the inequality of our era is one of the instruments, I argue, of perpetuating the inequality of our era. So um, that's what I think I take Beers to be talking about. How can we think and act sort of critically in the present when the medium of the way, the medium with which we do that language is always kind of betraying us and always laying traps for us. So what my book is, uh, trying to do is to give people a kind of field guide for some to navigate some of these uh, linguistic minefields in our current economy. How much has our era of capitalism, and we'll get into what we should call that era of capitalism in a moment, but how much uh, has our era of capitalism, um, I don't even know if this is the right word, weaponized, if you will, the language of capitalism? Uh, I mean, one of the things. So one of the things that does strike me as new, and um, and it's kind of the in a lot of ways the genesis of the project, is the way that um, the contemporary language of capitalism um, makes use of particular kinds of aesthetic, uh, you know, creative, artistic, and also kind of moral, a moral language of self improvement of of self-actualization, of um, and of social justice, in order to kind of uh, promote, you know, the same old sort of pursuit of of profit. And so, one uh, one of the tricky things is the way that a lot of keywords of um, contemporary business, you know, so an example would be one. A great example would be innovation, um, entrepreneurship, uh, resilience. Uh, words like this um, sometimes get used to express opposition to inequality and, uh, you know, to have a kind of a place in sort of left liberal languages of uh, or social movements and social organizations. So that's like part of what makes it, I think, particularly difficult that um, a lot of the language of of activism of the left, of sort of artistic practice, borrows from the same language that celebrates the privatization of social goods, that celebrates private action over collective uh, cooperation, that celebrates um, the market as a kind of um, natural or um, unchanging um, fact of our social reality that we can't, you know, negotiators can't think beyond. You mentioned the debate over whether we should call this moment late capitalism or neoliberalism or what we mm-hmm. should call it. And I, I don't want to get bogged down into this, but I just want to get this, put this aside before we move on with our conversation. You write that the desire by some thinkers on the left for neoliberalism to be retired in favor of one term or another strike me as 
more pointless than wrong. Why are arguments over the term neoliberalism more pointless and uh, than wrong? How wrong are they? Uh, well, I mean, the reason it's pointless is because, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter what you call the thing as long as you are sort of uh, trying to understand it. And, you know, my my approach to language is that I'm more in, I'm more invested in how words get used than I am in uh, ascertaining the true their true meaning. Because I, you know, as a you know a literary person, I understand that words don't have a singular singular true meaning and that they change all the time. So the part, the reason that I find neoliberal, I don't really try to use it too much in the book, um, is partly because of the the morass that you kind of alluded to that people get bogged down and kind of trying to argue about it. But also um, because I, as I wrote the book, I came to find that the neo can sometimes be misleading in neoliberalism and that kind of, it can kind of make us believe that we live in some sort of radically new period of history or a period of kind of capitalist history. And that's, you know, again, we always want to think that we're living in the most important moment in history. No one wants to think that they're living in the like Millard Fillmore administration or something, you know? So everybody wants to think that they're living in the moment when everything changes. But I actually find it sort of perversely comforting to think about the fact that even though the vocabulary for, um, exploitation, inequality, the dominance of sort of business ethic um, is so predominant now that it's been predominant before too. And uh, and that the the problems that we face are not unprecedented, uh, which means that the problems that we face are not insolvable either. And you write that uh, contra the euphoric claims of innovators or the apocalyptic claims of some of their critics, Things now are different, but also very much the same. In other words, to those fearful that neoliberalism is swallowing humanity, cheer up. Things have always been terrible. How is today's (laughs) terrible unique, and how is today's terrible (laughs) the same as all the past terrible? Um, Well, so one way in which um, the old terrible is a lot like the new terrible is that, um, especially in the United States, we've always associated the pursuit of wealth with the pursuit of virtue, you know, and that's like, that's a, that's true since Benjamin Franklin, um, wrote his autobiography or not before. Um, we've also always celebrated, uh, had a certain sort of technological determinism in which the achievement of new technologies is associated with the achievement of, of, of equality or justice. And that's very much part of our moment with Silicon Valley in particular. Um, I guess the things that strike me as being very new are, first of all, um, in the vocabulary of contemporary big business. Um, first of all, the, sen- the 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 celebration of uh, an artistic kind of personality for the business person is, I think, a relatively new feature. So I, I get at this in the book. You know, when the book is kind of organized around small essays about key kind of vocabulary terms and and it goes into the history of those terms and where they how they sort of developed in business rhetoric and business journalism and words like passion you know the idea that you're supposed to pursue your passion at work um, and that um, you should be passionately devoted to your job um, relies on a kind of artistic idea of uh, you know a 
a um, artist devoted to some sort of cause greater than oneself. Um, the celebration of creativity and the creative economy, um, those kinds of, you know, the, the idea of curation, you know, the use of curator to describe uh, basically the act of selling something. Um, the celebration of the maker, that's another one I talk about. So that kind of artistic vocabulary is new. Um, and, you know, even though, like, even though big business has always used sort of like a moral language to justify itself, I think one thing that's like sort of disturbing about a lot of the words that I talk about, innovation, again, is a good example of this, is the way that the pursuit of profit is understood increasingly now to be a kind of intrinsic human value um, for which there's no alternative and in, in, into uh, with which we kind of come into the world. And so you have the, as a result, you have the uh, thing I talk a lot about in the book, which is the, the phenomenon of entrepreneurship curricula and entrepreneurship summer camps for children and entrepreneurship daycare for um, pre-kindergarten children, which is in fact a thing that exists. Um, and so that kind of um, naturalization, I guess, of the will to sell and barter and buy um, and the way that it's conflated with childhood is a disturbing new phenomenon, I think. Yeah, that naturalization is really disturbing. The way that you describe it in your book is very scary as well. But I want to get to this other point about the language of capitalism. You write that the 21st century language of capitalism, a metaphorically rich vernacular in which the defenders of private property speak of virtues and vision, where wage laborers become imaginative artists and agile <laughs> athletes, and workplaces are transformed into vibrant ecologies and nurturing communities. In this language, the differences between creative resistance to capitalism and creative capitalism, health care and wellness, rebellion and disruption, and working class power and the commercial slogan of empowerment can be difficult to grasp. How much mm -hmm. is the goal of the language of capitalism? And I'm not even sure if I, that's the right way to phrase it, but we'll just go from there. How much is the goal mm -hmm. of the language of capitalism to undermine any resistance, to co-opt the language of dissent, thereby weakening any potential challengers? Uh, I think that's a major goal. Uh, and it doesn't mean that there's a secret room filled with cigar smoke somewhere where people are hatching these plots. Although I think in some cases they may not be filled with cigar smoke, but there are uh, some, there's some deliberation uh, in the history of uh, big business um, kind of propaganda publicity to change the vocabulary um, around uh, private property, especially after the New Deal in the United States. I can talk more about that, but um, but, but it, you know, it, it's not necessarily a, you know, a scheme or a, or a conspiracy, but it is a, a, a kind of ideological feature of our moment in which rebellion um, and resistance is reconstituted as a form of participation in, um, in the system of private property. And so, you know, disruption, a word that in political terms is still kind of uh, pejorative. I mean, you know, it's still regarded as uh, when college students disrupt a speaker, you know, for example, at a at a campus, it's still roundly condemned in um, polite circles. But disruption in the form of, in the in the space of the economy uh, is roundly celebrated, um, and a lot and and you know a lot of the words that I talk about, for example, you mentioned empowerment, um, have a certain left wing history that's interesting that has been 
dude, I think, and kind of co-opted as a slogan and as a way of under, understanding resistance in purely kind of individualized terms. You know, so you empower yourself through a practice of some practice of consumption. You know, you empower yourself by buying, um, and this is a, a slogan that's a particularly um, aimed at female consumers. You know, a, a particular kind of corporate feminism has developed uh, empowerment as a major slogan. Um, so you do it yourself. You do it privately. You do it um, in the marketplace. How does the current language of capitalism perpetuate inequality? Because you mentioned that in your book as well. So how, how does that current language of capitalism, how do those key words perpetuate inequality? Uh, well, um, I guess my main answer there would be that all the words that I talk about in the book are kinds of ways of avoiding talking about something else. So we talk about um, innovation instead of talking about work. You know, like when we, when, we, when we talk about innovation as a source of value, or innovation makes the economy go around, or innovation is the sort of engine of wealth. You know, that's a, kind of almost like a um, throwaway line, you know, in a lot of like mainstream economic discourse. We're not talking about the work that makes um, the economy go around when we talk of, when we use those terms. When we talk about human capital, for example, that's another word in the book. We're not talking about labor again. When we talk about um, resilience, we're not talking about resistance. So, I think one of the major sort of political functions of the words that I talk about is that they keep us from talking about what we should be talking about. Uh, their their way their evasion. Um, and it's not that you know if we only, if we only use the correct words for things, the uh, you know, social inequality would melt away. It's not obviously that simple, unfortunately. But what I believe, what I argue in the book, is that the 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 language we use to make sense of our economic system kind of constructs how we relate to it and how we relate to each other in it, uh, and it kind of binds our um, imaginations, our political imaginations. And I think that's a reason, that's something that the right wing certainly understands. Um, and that's, you know, why they uh, have promoted a vocabulary of uh, the private sector over government control, um, you know, to, to celebrate the idea of uh, pursuing your freedom, pursuing your fondest dreams through uh, through accumulation, through the private market, through enterprise, rather than you know seeking it in other ways. And you point out that uh, these key words share an affinity for hierarchy and competition, and often mm -hmm. uncritical acceptance of the benevolence of computing technologies and a celebration yeah. of moral values thought to be hold a second thought to be indistinguishable from uh, economic ones: decisive leadership, artistic passion, and self-realization. How much? Does the language of capitalism, do the keywords of capitalism, how much does that co-opt our morality? Does the language of capitalism now set our moral codes, and is that necessarily a good or a bad thing? There may be people who are listening who are like, well, why shouldn't capitalism set our moral codes? Well, uh, you know, 
the I, obviously I think it's a bad thing. Um, I guess I can think about the example of passion again. Um, the problem with understanding work as a process driven by one's passion misunderstands, first of all, the circumstances in which most people have to work, which are under conditions of duress, uh, which uh, is in, in work that's exhausting. Um, and so the idea that you can, first of all, find a kind of life's passion in your daily job is a is a kind of dream for most people. It's something you can only really achieve at, you know, if you're particularly privileged to do so. The other problem, though, is that it kind of orients our approach to work as not uh, as not as workers, but as um, collaborators, as co-leaders. And most of us really don't have that role and are not compensated for that role in our job. And so passion becomes a substitute for other more tangible forms of compensation, you know, like money, for example. Um, and it also, because passion tends to accrue so much to particular kinds of jobs, often feminized forms of work like teaching, where you are doing a particular job, not because you want to get rich and not because you uh, just uh, want wealth or fame, but because you have a certain, you know, commitment to the ideal of education or to commitment to children. Um, it justifies the kind of uh, unequal and uh, low-wage conditions under which most teachers, especially in this country, work. So the problem of, of, of aligning um, capitalism with a certain kind of morality or using the sort of moral vocabulary is that it obscures the uh, other kinds of moral and political necessities that we need to be talking about, like fair pay for teachers. Right. Um, and so uh, let me get uh, back to another thought I had earlier, because you were saying that you, know, you write from Silicon Valley to the White House, from kindergarten to mm-hmm. college, and from the factory floor to the church pulpit, we are called to be entrepreneurs and leaders, to be curators mm-hmm. of an ever-expanding roster of, of competencies. Like innovation, many of these words have a secret history that informs their modern usage in surprising ways. Others, like best practices and human capital, are relatively new coinages that teach us to thrive by applying the le- uh, lessons of a competitive marketplace to every sphere of life. And they all model uh, a kind of ideal personality, someone who is indefatigable, restless, flexible, always ready to accommodate the shocks of the global economy and the more mundane disruptions of working life from unpredictable scheduling and service work to reduce paternal leave and the outsourcing of more and more administrative tasks to fewer and fewer employees. Tireless, Mm -hmm. restless, flexible, accommodating. Are those the traits our education system is now teaching? Do our schools teach traits that are now best suited for our economy? And does capitalism even dictate what traits we teach kids? Yeah, sure does. Um, I mean, the entrepreneurship summer camps are are one uh, good example of that. Uh, And entrepreneurship education is something that, you know, sort of oddly enough is one of the more egalitarian features of our very unequal education system. And it's in that it's preached both to uh, poor children in uh, public school districts, and it's preached at public universities, such as the one I teach at, and it's also um, 
preached in elite private schools in you know San Francisco and the Ivy League. Um, and I think that it's a consequence of a couple of things. Um, in the case of you know the example I know fairly well because uh, I work in it in higher education, the turn to um, innovation and entrepreneurship curricula and the turn to celebrating these very vague ideas. Um, and one thing about, you know, a lot of the keywords I talk about and innovation again is a good example of this is just how vague and, um, fluffy they are, you know, their meaning is so elusive, um, and it can be manipulated so easily for that reason. Um, the turn to these kind of innovation entrepreneurship curricula, despite the lack of real evidence that they are useful and that they have, a, that they return on their big, on the big investment made in them. Um, is a consequence of the fact that, you know, after a financial crisis, 2008 especially, students are increasingly nervous. Parents are increasingly nervous about uh, a jobless future. Um, universities, especially public ones, are increasingly um, starved of funds. And uh, big business is always eager to promote itself. And so you have these kinds of uh, institutions that are Looking for funds, you have students who are uh, who have been kind of educated throughout their lives to uh, think that um, the future is really dire for them if they don't have a particular uh, marketable set of skills. Um, and you have universities that will need money and will take you know a donation for the new so-and-so Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And so those kinds of initiatives start to really set priorities um, at, uh, in higher education. And you, I think you see a sort of phenomena that are similar uh, in elementary and, and high school as well. So there's a couple of things I want to mention, and we're running out of time. We only have about 10 minutes left. But there's so many other things I want to mention about your book. Uh, you write, a financially leavened existence tells us that the debts we owe and the work we do for others, often increasingly low-paid and casual, are investments in ourselves sure to pay off later. Yeah. So how dependent is the un this understanding on a hopeful view of the future? What effect do you think the dropping poll numbers when it comes to the amount of hope Americans have that their life will be better than their parents. What effect does that have on the willingness for people to invest in a hopeful future? Because this is going to get to us this idea of ba uh, bootstraps that I want to get to. So, so mm -hmm. uh, again, my question is what effect does that have on the willingness to invest in a hopeful future? Well, you know, one, one thing that's interesting about a lot of the, the words that I talk about um, is they, is the combination of, kind of really cheerful optimism um, and just kind of hopelessness uh, that you find in them. So, you know, there's something to me, and maybe you agree too, about, to go back to this example, entrepreneurship summer camp for a six-year-old that I found, I find like deeply depressing. Um, and desperate, you know, and it's a product of a kind of desperation uh, that would drive a parent to be that to be this worried at this point about their 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 six year old's future twenty years down the line. 
And there's also this kind of like real cheerful optimism that through these kind of individual initiatives, through kind of investments in particular technologies, through an embrace of um, a current kind of vogue for, you know, something called entrepreneurship, that um, we can kind of uh, secure this bright future. And um, that's one of the things my book is kind of chronicling is that that kind of uh, ricochet between a kind of euphoric optimism that all is possible through the market and all is possible through these particular digital technologies and all is possible through um, a kind of flexible approach to work. And also that if you don't do these things, you're doomed. You know? One thing I couldn't help but think about when uh, I was reading your book is, well, at one point you grouped the keywords of contemporary cap- uh, capitalism into some categories, and one you write we can call late capitalist body talk. These are words like brand, yeah. flexible, nimble, lean, and robust, which draw on the human body as a metaphor uh, for the corporation. And that made me think about this idea of corporate personhood following the 1976 Supreme Court decision, Buckley versus Valio, and 2010 Citizen United versus Federal Election Commission, which combined ruled that uh, political spending, including corporate political spending, is protected by the First Amendment right to free speech. How do you see or hear or read keywords to capitalism within corporate personhood? Because that isn't one of the top, uh, phrases that you mentioned in your book that you have an essay of. So I just wanted to take something that mm-hmm. wasn't mentioned in your book and see how you would apply your keywords to that. Well, the the corporate body, uh, the corporate personhood question is particularly interesting and honestly just strange to me because of the fact that the, the word corporation is already a bodily metaphor. You know, it derives from the Latin corpus for body, and so it it the the idea of the corporation is already kind of constituted as a metaphorical body. Um, and one of the things I say about all the the as you said the body talk the the idea of a nimble corporation, nimble, lean, flexibility, branding, um, is that what they do is they frame the work that people do as a kind of athletic contest governed by fair rules, and that is definitely the conceit of the, you know, the current fantasy of corporate personhood, um, that the corporation is a person just like you or I, and their speech is just like yours or mine. Um, so that, I think the corporate personhood metaphor, uh, is a good example of, it's a kind of absurdity. Um, it's transparently ridiculous, but it is something that kind of um, is of a piece with a dominant um, form of uh, thinking about uh, work and about um, the corporation now. So it's that it's again that sort of like combination of a can give you a sort of whiplash, the like the bouncing back between euphoria and uh, desperation. The, the 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 bouncing back between kind of this obviously sort of ridiculous conceit and then the uh, the reality that we're all supposed to be participating uh, as if we believe it. You quote Florina Rodov and Sabrina Trong writing in Entrepreneur Magazine, entrepreneurship education benefits students from all socioeconomic backgrounds because it teaches kids to think outside the box and nurtures unconventional talents and skills. You add... 
What is striking here is how, in defining entrepreneurship, the authors feel no obligation to defend it. It is not that the skills of business strategy or accounting are merely useful things to interested, for interested uh, students to learn. Rather, schools should teach entrepreneurship for the same reasons they should nourish the civic and personal values of equality and curiosity. How much of a threat is this self-entrepreneurship idea of teaching that as a, a value, a trait for students in schools? How much is that a threat to the value of equality? Yeah, I mean, Entrepreneur Magazine, one of my favorite sources for um, <laughs> sort of vacuous thinking about uh, business. Um, and one thing that I just noticed while you're reading that is, you know, that uh, they talk about thinking outside the box. And that's a phrase that comes up a lot in the in the stuff that I read. And, you know, obviously there's no more inside the box phrase than inside the box. Um, and so a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the, the kind of stuff that I write about, a lot of my sources, um, you know, are sometimes easy to um, pick apart the the assumptions they make. But in the case of, um, you know, the the entrepreneurial ideal in education, you know, like inside, like the phrase inside the box, entrepreneurship is such a kind of vague concept. It can mean everything, and it can mean anything. Um, and but the thing that's disturbing about it is that it only means you know things done privately, things done for one's own advancement, things done for, um, uh, in, in a market that is thought to be fair and equal, um, where any, any kid who learns and who tries, uh, can, can get ahead. Um, and it kind of, uh, forestalls talking about those other kinds of social values that we hope that, um, kids are learning and that we hope that we're learning ourselves. Um, but when we when we frame them all in terms of entrepreneurship, you know, you really restrict the range of possibilities um, in a way that, uh, to me, is distressing. And is that what you fear most, what happens to a society when it is made up not of citizens but entrepreneurial selves? Uh, how do our allegiances shift yeah. when our entrepreneurial self comes first? Uh, well, you know, it's it's a... We're, we're being, I think, taught to think of our allegiances as a very narrow term, you know, our allegiance to ourselves, our allegiances to um, our customers and ourselves. And that's a, you know, a that's a de that's depressing possibility to me anyway. You want readers to reflect upon the keywords of the other world that remains possible. So for mm -hmm. free time not flexibility, for free health care, not wellness, and for free universities, not the marketplace of ideas, for people power, mm -hmm. not private empowerment, for more masses and fewer leaders, for imagination and not entrepreneurship, for solidarity, not sharing, and for communal luxury, not solitary grit. The words you choose to have changed in that passage, flexibility, wellness, the marketplace of ideas, empowerment, leaders, entrepreneurship, sharing, and grit, they all connote the individual, while the words you want to replace them are those that are more collective, free time, free health care, free universities, people power, uh, more masses and fewer leaders, for imagination, not entrepreneurship, for solidarity, and for uh, communal luxury. How much right. does language today 
embrace? Do, do these the keywords of capitalism, does the language of capitalism, how much do they embrace the individual and erase the collective? Do we write and speak in a way, whether intentionally or not, subconsciously or not, that puts the individual first and foremost at all times, even if that isn't our own true beliefs? Yeah, um, I think so. Um, and we're certainly encouraged to do so by these kinds of words. And, and when, especially I think where it's, you know, particularly dangerous um, is when, again, this kind of, uh, these kind of private values get smuggled in to um, discussions that are, that should be about um, democratic, however you define that term, uh, democratic ideals, democratic participation and values. Um, so when we talk about, for example, um, post-Katrina New Orleans or post-earthquake Haiti as places defined by capacities for resilience, um, what you're kind of uh, conceding is that disasters belong in these places and are bound to happen to these places. And so the best we can hope for is that the people there will be resilient against disaster. And again, you're, you're very, you're narrowing the horizon of possibility so much when I think we think in these terms, and it's not to say that anybody who, you know, who says the word resilient, who has said it today or thought it recently, you know, is a naughty person or is, um, uh, committed to injustice. But my interest is in what, how these Kinds of how the vocabulary we use shape, you know, our imagination of uh, of what's possible. And I think the, the the contemporary language of capitalism is really about encouraging us to um, think of ourselves as private individuals in kind of endless competition with everybody else. You mentioned something that I found really fascinating. I just got two more questions for you. One is that uh, creativity seems inter- eternal. It's not. Its first example in the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, dates to 1875. What does that tell you about creativity when the word is so new? Yeah, well, um, it, what it, one thing about the history of creativity, so the, the word itself didn't exist until the late 19th century. Creation was originally just a word for the divine creation, you know, capital C creation. Um, and the act of creating was something divine or the act of creating was something, um, productive. So, you know, you would create a, um, you know, a a blacksmith would create some product in his shop or a farmer would create something or a cook would create something. Um, what happens in the late 19th century is that the word gets the, the, there's a development between you know, a, a split between creation as something productive and creation as something artistic. And the artistic creation gets sort of framed as individual rather than social or collaborative, as you know, we understand farming or blacksmithing or cooking to, to be at some level. Um, and it becomes associated with these kinds of uh, charismatic individuals removed from society. And when business rhetoric takes up the idea of that idea of creativity, that kind of artistic individualistic idea of creativity, um, and applies it to the economy, 
um, what happens is that, again, you know, labor kind of disappears. The work that is done, shared work that's done by people to, to you know, to make a business or to pr- produce value um, gets um, kind of sidelined. And what what we tend to marvel at now is the you know, the the myth of the leader who fabricated everything in, in you know, in his uh, in his sort of metaphorical artist studio. We have been speaking with U.S. and Latin American literature and culture scholar John Patrick Leary. He is author of Keywords, The New Language of Capitalism. You can find out more about Keywords at keywordsforcapitalism.com. Keyword, keywordsforcapitalism.com. You can follow John on Twitter at John Pat Leary. That's L-E-A-R-Y. One last question for you, John, and yep. as we do with each and every one of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience <laughs> is going to hate your response. You write how one student reflected on the opportunity that springs from the stagnant job market she had, she and her cohort faced after graduation. She framed this worrisome circumstance in surprisingly upbeat terms. For her, job insecurity is almost a generational virtue, a willingness to not only pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but to do so repeatedly, nurturing an entrepreneurial self becomes not a self-abrogating and exhausting sacrifice here, but a source of possibility. In this way, the idea of entrepreneurial selfhood spins the old straw of bootstraps individualism into something that shines like gold. What's wrong with, the, with an age viewing bootstraps as something that shines like gold. After all, isn't raising yourself up by your own bootstraps? Isn't that now and has always been what it means to be American, what the American dream means? So what's wrong with bootstraps? Well, I mean, because what's wrong with it is that um, it, punish, it sort of punishes people for um, things that are out of their control. Um, the idea that you should be, and if you're not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, if you're not embracing this um, this risk mentality that I described, that student um, embracing that you are lazy or a failure or a you know a bad millennial, for example, um, that's a a kind of I think it's something that's preached to people, especially young people, and um, who are also consequently told that they are. Um, you know, that they're snowflakes and that they don't want to work hard and they expect everything to be handed to them and they want to just download everything or whatever. But there's, uh, but this, you know, the degeneration that that student belongs to is under incredible pressure um, from forces that they did not create and that they're not responsible for. And I think that um, we, sh- they, we, uh, we should be willing, um, they should be willing to kind of face those pressures honestly and not um, act like they're simply a consequence of their own failures or weakness. You know, it's unfair. John, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. Again, people can find your book for 50% off over at Haymarket Books website. You can find out more about your book at keywordsforcapitalism.com. It's not available anywhere else until January, so you have to go to Haymarket Press, go to their or Haymarket Books Press or website. You can follow John on Twitter at John Pat Leary. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. It was fun. Take care. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. Alex, you can go to Brian at your earliest convenience. Uh, The left 
in the talk back isn't working again, by the way, in case you didn't notice. Uh, nope. Uh, I can hear you now. I can hear you, but I don't think you can hear me. Watch this. See, nothing. The left in the West, the global North, whatever you want to call it, but especially in the U.S., completely abandoned Brazil's left while it was under siege from a coup leading to the election of a fascist. Way to go, U.S. left. We'll find out what the hell happened when we talk to our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Brian Muir, who co-authored the Telesur article, How the U.S. Left Failed Brazil. Why did the U.S. left media bash a successful Democratic Socialist Party during a right-wing coup? And uh, Brian wrote that with Sean T. Mitchell and Brian Pitts. It's, let me see what's going on. I'm going to skip rotten history for now. This week's question from hell is, what's that scented candle you just lit? What's that scented candle you just lit? All replies read on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a copy of a book we are not featuring on This Is Hell this year. Former Brazil President Lula da Silva's Truth Will Prevail, Why I Have Been Condemned. Again, the question from hell is, what's that scented candle you just lit? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you have won. Don't forget to like us on Facebook again at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio. Subscribe to our podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. And see how all of our listeners are subverting public advertising with This Is Hell subvertising stickers on Instagram at this is hell radio. Do we have Alex? Oh, excellent, Alex. We do have Alex. I was wondering about Brian. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, we'll learn how the leftist press in the U.S. abandoned Brazil's left during the coup that overthrew Dilma Rousseff and in the run-up to the election of a fascist. We'll reveal how President Trump may not be a fascist. He's just a patrimonialist. We'll figure out what the hell that means. We'll discuss Russia beyond Putin, and that's something Russians are already doing as term limits keep Putin from running for re-election in 2024. And we'll hear from our man on all things beer, who will be here to talk about beer in our annual final segment of the year here on This Is Hell, Not To Fear. It's the year in beer. Finally, we'll have the final moment of truth for 2018 with Jeff Dorchin, and this time, Jeff can't win for losing... All that stuff. Plus, we'll have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll get back to Rotten History, I promise. Uh, we'll tell you what's going on on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming editions of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell. Alex Jerry, live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio. This is hell. The U.S. left, hell, all the Western and global North left, abandoned Brazil's left when they were needed most during a fascist coup that overthrew their democratically elected leader. Here to hopefully help us figure out why this happened and how to make certain it doesn't happen again, our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Brian Muir, co-authored the Telesur article, How the U.S. Left Failed Brazil, Why Did the U.S. Left Media Bash a Successful Democratic Socialist Party During a Right-Wing Coup? Brian wrote that article with Sean T. Mitchell, and Brian Pitts. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brian. 
Hi, Chuck. It's great to be back. It's great to have you back on, sir. And I'm glad to see that you're getting a lot more media attention, a lot more people interviewing you. It's really, really fantastic, sir. So congratulations. Well, thanks for years of opportunity to hone my radio technique (laughs) on your show. Hey, look, don't blame me for your honing, okay? Okay. You write, after an electoral defeat to the far-right Jair Bolsonaro, fueled largely by fake news and blatantly partisan judicial measures against the PT, the Workers' uh, Party, Brazil's largest leftist party, is now often extolled on the U.S. left for its democratic socialist successes. Yet it is easy to forget that it, what a transformation this was for North American leftist outlets. Before we get to their criticisms, the left's criticisms of the PT, Jacobin Magazine's criticisms of the PT, what explains to you why it took these leftist magazines and organizations so long to not recognize how unfair the impeachment of Dilma was, how unfair the charges against Lula were, how far right the alternative to Dilma and Lula and the PT was, and now is in the form of Jair Bolsonaro and his new government that includes other former members of the military junta. PT aside, Brian, why didn't the leftist publications you research realize how justice was corrupted in a strategy by the far right to unfairly put those behind the dictatorship back in control of Brazil? Well, I think there was some mention a little bit that what was going on against Dilma Rousseff was unfair. But I think that um, Brazil is just a very big and confusing country that's not that easy to understand. And the media in general, journalism, tends to deal with these kind of mind-stopping cliches and try and break down issues into binary things, like either they're left or they're right, either they're good or they're bad, whatever. You know, there's always like one simple cause for everything and most of what you read in journalism. And that just didn't work, you know, explaining what was happening against Dilma Rousseff. You know, I, I don't, I really don't know. All I know is that it just happened, you know, like all of this, you know, you've been listening to me for years talking about this. Like I was, when the coup was, launching against Dilma Rousseff, I remember a listener wrote in and just said, why is Brian defending someone like Dilma Rousseff? You know, and uh, I guess the way things have played out, it's pretty obvious now. But I don't I just know what happened. I can't really explain why I have different theories, you know, which I can get into in further in more depth. Yeah. This conversation progresses. Yeah, uh, but we've had conversations when you have ripped on the New York Times coverage of Brazil. Last week, we had Cole Stangler on the show live from Paris about how we get the yellow vest movement wrong. Cole and I talked about recent New York Times coverage of the yellow vests, framing it as being those who support fighting climate change against those who want lower taxes which the person who started the movement on social media explicitly said the media was not about at the very beginning in his very first announcement of the movement online. As Cole pointed out in Jacobin and at The Nation, the Yellow Vest movement uh, is about the wealthy getting uh, tax cuts while the rest of France has to pay higher taxes. It's about fiscal fairness. It's about class. So I asked Cole if that's why the Times gets the the Yellow Vest wrong, because reporting on issues of class is, at the very least, uh, challenging to the times. How much of what you see wrong in the reporting of the mainstream news media, again, before we get to the left, of the paper of record, the New York Times, when it comes to Brazil, is because Brazil is a story of class. Is the problem that the Times 
has problems with reporting on class, whether it's in France or Brazil or anywhere for that matter. No, not at all. The problem with the, I'm sorry, I thought you were talking about left media. The problem with the Times and the Guardian and the Washington Post is they're just voices for the extended U.S. state, which includes the corporations, you know, in the Gramscian, Marcusean term of what the extended state is. The government, the political parties, the corporations, and the media that supports all of this mess. And so what you're getting in the New York Times is straight up corporate and government propaganda in favor of the coup. You know, the, the New York Times rarely strays from the State Department line in Latin America in any country. And you see that with the reporting on Venezuela and Nicaragua. There's no investigative work being done whatsoever. It's all just PR you know, favoring corporate interests and, and the U.S. government, so, State Department interests. So to you, it's not an inability to talk about class or an unwillingness to talk about class. It's an ability, a willingness to promote U.S. interests? Well, if you look at, they, they just hired Juliana Barbaza as their Latin American desk editor, and she came straight from this Rockefeller-founded corporate think tank named as COA, America's Society Council of the Americas, which was directly involved in the Chilean coup. At one point, they offered half a million dollars to Chilean senators in 1970 to block Salvador Allende from taking power. And they've been involved in almost every coup in Latin America. And uh, they're, they're just funded by all the big oil companies, by Boeing, by Microsoft, and they're a kind of corp- they have this corporate PR publication called America's Quarterly, you know, and they, and they have a revolving door with the New York Times. So Juliana Barbosa was the assistant managing editor of America's Quarterly, and now she's New York Times desk uh, editor, Latin America desk editor. So what does that mean? It means that the New York Times is simply parroting corporate PR about Latin America in general. You know, I wouldn't say it's a failure to, I would say they understand what the clash issues are. They're just, they're just poorly, they have poor intentions. They're not actually doing journalism. They're just doing PR. You write, we focus mostly in your writing uh, on uh, Jacobin magazine because it is the publication perhaps most associated with the rise of electorally competitive democratic socialism in the United States. And because it so clearly exemplifies the broader trend we identify. So Jacobin, the publication that is the best example of the rise of democratic socialism in the U.S., is too highly critical of the Brazilian left. And here you are as a member of the Brazilian left being critical of Jacobin. Why is there this kind of disconnect between the U.S. left and the rest of the left? Or maybe more accurately, Brian, it's the left of the global north and the left of the global south. What explains their disconnect, and can there actually ever be international unity, or are those two different kinds of lefts existing in two different kinds of environments, so the chances that unity are very small? No, I think there's all kinds of chances for solidarity and and unity in the international left. I mean, the whole point of the first international is to foster this, right, in the 1880s or whenever it was. I think it's possible, sure. And I, I think that in the 1980s, like if you read before the Internet, we had these publications like NACLA and um, uh, Covert Action Quarterly, which was founded by Philip Agis, CIA Diaries author. And w- there were some really interesting kind of magazines and zines you would buy in these cool bookstores and stuff. 
And then subject number one in writing about the leftist struggle in Latin America was always U.S. imperialism. And I just think it's outrageous that the American left stopped talking about U.S. imperialism in Brazil and in other countries in Latin America, because me and my two colleagues, Sean and Brian, we did a systematic reading of all 38 articles that Jacobin published between 2014 and the end of 2017 about Brazil. None of them mentioned U.S. imperialism. None of them mentioned American petroleum companies. Like, how can you, like, what's the point of even writing about Latin America as an American or, or presenting articles as an American publication if you're not going to talk about the elephant in the room, which is the fact that, you know, the U.S. has held 44 successful coups in Latin America in the last 100 years. They were directly, Hillary Clinton admitted to supporting the coup in Honduras in her own autobiography last year. You know, and obviously, uh, after Brazil discovered huge amounts of petroleum and developed new technology for deep water drilling offshore that no one else had, obviously the U.S. would be interested in the petroleum. So why, why would you run 38 consecutive articles that don't mention U.S. imperialism, because when you fail to mention U.S. imperialism, all that's left for you really is just talk about what kind of mistakes the Brazilian left made. No, look at they failed. Look at this is why the article is ironically called the failure of the U.S. left. You know, because uh, you can't talk about failure of the PT party or the Brazilian left without talking about who they were fighting and what the power differential was. So you're you're talking about a, a political party that controlled 22% of Congress, never controlled the military, you know, never controlled the Congress or the Senate or the judiciary fully, you know, going up against the most powerful imperialist nation in the world, petroleum interests. And so you have to look at, you know, who they were fighting if you're going to talk about what they failed to do. You know, and, but even so, like, isn't it, wouldn't it be better to start as a starting point to listen to them talking about what they think they did right and did wrong, because in all 38 of these articles, they didn't talk to anyone from the PT party once, or or the CUT, the the largest labor union federation in Brazil, which has seven million members and is the flesh and blood of the PT party. Really, you know the base, the base that's been supporting it all along that Lula came out of, or even the landless peasants movement, which is the largest social movement in Brazil by far, and the most important social movement in Brazil. The one time they ran an interview with someone from the MST, it was a seven-year-old interview from the year in which the MST was supporting a different political party in the presidential elections, PSOL. But in 2017, they were fully behind the PT. So why would they run a seven-year-old interview at that point even, you know? Just to build this narrative that the PT is no longer left, the PT is a neoliberal party, uh, it, its failure, its sellout is what caused the coup. All of this kind of line of thinking that's, that permeates all 38 of these articles. And what's ironic is the entire U-turn they did in 2018, which I credit to Bascar visiting Brazil and actually seeing what was going on down there and saying, hey, slow down. We've got to start. We've got to give some solidarity to the PT party. You know, they're, they're the most powerful left political party in Latin America. They had 47 million votes this year, even though they, they lost. And the, the party that Jacobin was kind of pumping up as the future of the Brazilian left, which is the PSOL party, 
uh, they got 500,000 votes. They, they, they're less electorally significant than the American Green Party in Brazil. And you mentioned the the difference between the two parties. One is that the PT has had a lot of success and that the other party hasn't had a lot of success. But also PSOL, they uh, kind of embrace the academic purity of the left, while the PT embraces the more populist left. Is that the delineation that we might be seeing when it comes to the U.S. left uh, criticism of left movements overseas, that they side with the more academic purist left and don't like the populist left. Is that the big division that's happening within the left uh, more generally, that it's academic left versus populist left? You know, Chuck, I can't really talk authoritatively about the rest of the world's left. Like, what I do know a lot about is Brazil. And so I'll limit my comments to this, and you can uh, generalize accordingly. Um, I think there's a, it's true that the PSOL party is dominated by academic uh, leftists, you know, and you would think, well, that would naturally appeal to American academic leftists. And some of these publications like The Nation and Jacobin, whatever they, they hire, I mean, they, whatever they, I don't know what they pay but they, they get writers who are like grad students, you know, who are kind of academically orientated. But the PT party also is a huge and rich intellectual and academic tradition. I mean, like Paulo Freire was one of the founders of the PT party. And you look at their presidential candidate this year, Fernando Haddad. He's, a uni- he's an economics or philosophy professor at the best university in Brazil. And they have a lot of congressmen and senators who came out of academia because they were like teachers union leaders, you know, um, like Margarita Solomon, who's a congresswoman from the PT. She's got a doctorate and a postdoctorate from UC Berkeley in linguistics, and she was a teachers union leader. So just saying that it's because they sided with academia against the working class on this, on this left divide in Brazil or whatever, it's not really that accurate. And also, I think they missed a lot of nuance, which is that the PSOL party is a faithful ally of the PT in Brazil. And it's not like they, critis- they provide a lot of really needed and good criticism of the PT party. But when push comes to shove in Congress, they vote together on over 90 percent of the issues. You know, after the first round was over, the PSOL supported Fernando Haddad in these presidential elections. If you read these 38 Jacobin articles, that nuance is kind of lost as well. You know? <laughs> so, Brian, just, few, so, Brian, just a few more questions for you. Questions uh, for you. Does the PT simply not reflect the left that Jacobin supports? What's wrong with applying ideological purity? Why shouldn't our allegiance and concern be toward and about ideology first, above and beyond everything else, including the uh, amazing outcomes that PT has had. Why shouldn't we focus on ideology and ideological purity first? Well, first of all, Jacobin is supporting PT for the last year, so it's not they've done a right. 180 on you know. So, but ideological purity is needed. Uh, it's like um, what Gramsci called these these small political parties that offer that serve like 
educational and moralist purposes. I think that they're important for pulling the the bigger parties farther to the left. You know, just as in the U.S., we have these parties like the Libertarian Party that just they never get any votes, but they pull the Republicans farther to the right. You know, these small parties have a important role, but when you're not from that country, when you're from the country that just caused the coup, you know, that that corporations are benefiting from the coup, in the ter- in the, uh, for example, the three hundred billion dollar tax cut that was made after the coup to U.S. petroleum companies operating in Brazil, you know, then it it begins to look like taking this ideological pure left posture is actually just a very non-threatening thing to do that doesn't um, threaten State Department objectives. It doesn't threaten capitalist institutions. In fact, what it does is it performs almost like a validating role so that the conservatives can say, oh, we have democracy in Brazil because we have these guys, you know, who are never threatening power. So... It's a, I think it's a complex issue, but I don't, I don't think that in the middle of a coup, adopting a far-left ideological posture and attacking the one party that has the, the base size you know, and, the, and the strength to try and counter fascism in a country is very helpful. In fact, it's like, it's like the lead, one of the leaders of the MST told me, uh, sometimes this vanguard left posture, it's not revolutionary, it's anti-revolutionary. Because if the, if the main reason that the PT didn't win the election this year, you know, was several years of anti-PTism in the media coming from the right, why would anti-PTism on the left help anything? If anything, it just feeds in farther into the conservative narrative. And you see talking points from, the, from Jacobin and from other left American publications being used in corporate media like The Guardian and The New York Times now, saying like, oh, the PT has to be more humble. It has to apologize, publicly apologize for its mistakes and things like that. I believe that issue originated in Jacobin. So uh, another thing that you point out is the landless workers movement, the MST, another key actor of the Brazilian organized left. It was influential in the legalization of homesteading on unproductive or stolen land. And despite constant media opposition to agribusiness violence, has obtained deeds for around 400,000 small farms since the 1980s. When we began This Is Hell in 1996, this was the first aspect of Brazilian life that really grabbed my interest, the MST. And I know we had several interviews in the 1990s with members of uh, Friends of the MST and other groups. You add in contrast to their disdain for CUT, uh, the labor union that works... uh, kind of with the PT, but they're totally two different organizations. Jacobin authors seldom uh, directly criticize what David Harvey, in a personal conversation with one of the authors, called the most perfect social movement in the world. Rather, they generally ignore the MST. In your opinion, what doesn't attract the U.S. left in the form of Jacobin or anyone uh, to the most perfect social movement in the world, the MST? Well, first of all, I worked with the MST for five years, and there much farther left in practice than anyone I've ever met from Jacobin, because they actually, you know, they actually squat on land that's been stolen by ranchers and loggers and start farming on it and resist sometimes, you know, at, at gunpoint to hold on to this land. And, they're, you know, they're socialists 
they have deep connections with the world, you know, with the with the Cuban government, and you know, Paul, they they developed adult literacy techniques with direct help from Paulo Freire, and they're like real leftists who actually practice what they preach, and they support the PT. So it puts these ideological purity measurers uh, in a very uncomfortable position when they have to explain that the MST support has been supporting the PT all these years. Uh, just one last question for you, Brian. We have been speaking with Brian Mir. He is our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He co-authored the Telesur article, How the U.S. Left Failed Brazil. And he has another article about how The Guardian did a bad job in covering uh, Brazil as well. So one on Jacobin and one on The Guardian. The one on Jacobin he co-wrote with Sean T. Mitchell and Brian Pitts. Brian is editor of Voices of the Brazilian Left, a collection of interviews with Brazil's left who are rarely, if ever, interviewed by, let alone mentioned in the northern media. He's an editor at Brazil Wire, freelance writer, producer whose work regularly appears at Telesur. Brian also has his own weekly web TV show in Brazil for some big lefty news medium called Brazil 24-7. One last question for you, Brian. Uh, Well, let me see. Which one of these two? All right. You write, to their credit, U.S. left media have unequivocally condemned Bolsonaro and Jacobin is helping lead a solidarity campaign for the PT and Brazilian left. But what if the U.S. left had moderated its criticism earlier to defend the PT against the developing coup? Would there have been greater solidarity with Dilma Rousseff, greater resistance to the Temer government's attack on the working class, and earlier recognition of the threat of Bolsonaro? There's no way to know, but perhaps it's time for the U.S. left to turn its critical gaze back onto itself. What do you hope the U.S. left would see when it reexamines itself following the way in which it reacted to the rise of Brazil's right and to what happened with Brazil's left? Well, first of all, I just want to say we took Jacobin as an example, you know, and gave it a high level of scrutiny. And I know Jacobin publishes a lot of good stuff in the U.S., right? So, um, but regarding your question, right? I think that I think that people should these people on the American left who write about Latin America and other places should reflect about what the role of an American leftist really should be in this situation. And does it help to go and tell people in other countries that they're wrong, or should they be looking at what their country is doing? And how its actions are affecting these other countries, especially in the third world. Because if you're, if you're just going to be like bad-mouthing people in another country because their left isn't pure enough, what's the point? You know, why not talk about what your country is doing? I mean, it takes a, a, lot, a little bit more courage to do that. You know, but I think that's what the American left should be asking in terms of how it deals with issues in Latin America. What's happened since the 1980s? When, people, when left publications just stop talking about U.S. imperialism, is it because of grant funding? Is this all these foundations like Ford Foundation and Rockefeller Brothers Foundation who are funding magazines that used to be really hard left, like NACLA? You know, what, I, don't know, I just don't understand what's going on. Like what, what's even the point of doing it if you're not talking about what your country is doing to screw everybody over in the rest of the world? The U.S. is the biggest imperialist country in the world. It's stealing everybody's oil. It's killing people all over the place. And instead of talking about what it's doing in Nicaragua or Venezuela or, or Brazil, you're just going to write about the mistakes that the Brazilians made or the Nicaraguans made. You know, 
I think that's the question they should be asking themselves. Why aren't we talking about our own country? Brian, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, especially this year, 2018, during the Brazilian election. We really appreciate all the coverage that you have given us. Thanks so much for being on and being part of This Is Hell, and we look forward to working with you throughout 2019 as well. All right, Chuck, take it easy. Have a good New Year's. All right, you too. I'm not as smart as you think, and yes, I do realize a lot of you think I'm an idiot. This is hell. Sorry about that. Donald Trump is not a fascist. Donald Trump is a patrimonialist. Whatever the hell that is, our next guest will tell us what that is. And it isn't good for anybody. But at least Trump doesn't have the organization and, the, uh, and his people don't have the competence to be fascists. We'll try to suss out what Trump is all about when we have a chat with sociologist Dylan Riley, author of the New Left Review article, What is Trump? Dylan is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history in the year... 856, 1162 years ago, a catastrophic earthquake struck in Persia, now known as Iran, with an estimated intensity of 7.9 on the Richter scale, and its epicenter was near the town of, hmm, I'm going to say Domgen. The quake caused heavy destruction in towns, villages, and farms across an area extending more than 200 miles. And it was followed by aftershocks for several years. Some villages were so completely destroyed that no attempt was made to rebuild them. The quake also disturbed springs and aquifers so that water supplies in the region were severely compromised. Overall, an estimated 200,000 people were killed. The U.S. Geological Survey lists the Domgin event as the fourth most deadly earthquake, earthquake in recorded history. Fourth most deadly earthquake in recorded history. Fourth? Okay, I gotta know the three more deadly earthquakes. Turns out, I remember the first one coming in at number three. The December 26th Boxing Day earthquake 2004. And tsunami that hit Indonesia, killing 227,898 people. At number two and killing an official 255,000 but an estimated 655,000. The July 27, 1976 earthquake in Tangshan, China, and the deadliest earthquake of all time is the January 23, 1556 earthquake in Shanxi, China, that killed 833,000 people. And now you know. In Rotten History, 1988, 30 years ago, after enduring years of death threats and murder attempts, the rubber tapper, labor organizer, and environmental actor Chico Mendez was assassinated outside his home near Chapari in the state of Acre in western Brazil. That would be so cool to have in your obituary rubber tapper, labor organizer, and environmental activist. I mean, for me, rubber tapper would be enough, but you know, you throw in labor organizer and environmental activist, that's one amazingly 
successful life. Mendez had grown up in a family of plantation workers in the Amazon rainforest near the Bolivian border where he began work tapping rubber trees at the age of nine. Who knew those things grew on trees? I thought the only place they could be found was at the pharmacy or in my gangway. Uh, There were no schools on the plantation, and Mendez could not read until he was 18. Yet in time, he educated himself in agriculture, ecology, politics, and labor history, and he worked for years to secure the rights of rubber workers and promote sustainable farming against the loggers and cattle ranchers who sought to cut down the rainforest for their own profit. I have got a new hero, Chico Mendez. Why haven't I heard of him before? Or did I, but I can't remember? I mean, that would make sense that I don't know or don't remember because in 1988, I was busy tapping a lot of rubber. In the months before Chico Mendez's death, he had been leading rubber tappers and indigenous people in nonviolent resistance against a number of ranchers who wanted to forcibly clear-cut an area already set aside for a rubber reserve. Which makes me feel even more guilty for all these stupid rubber-tapping jokes. Though his work was attracting international attention, Mendez knew the ranchers were plotting to kill him, and corrupt state authorities were publicly denouncing him as a communist and a subversive, which is a lot like saying you like both country and Western music. By the time one of the ranchers finally showed up at his house with a shotgun, Mendez had told his closest friends that he did not expect to live past Christmas. He died at the age of 44 the day after Christmas. And that's truly rotten history. A real rotten way to end rotten history for 2018. And like I keep telling you, this is hell. This week's question from hell is, what's that scented candle you just lit? What's that scented candle You just lit all replies. Get read on air following our next guest this week. This week's winner gets a book that we did not feature on This Is Hell in 2018. Former Brazil President Lula da Silva's Truth Will Prevail, Why I Have Been Condemned. And we're featuring that book this week, giving it away because we had our Sao Paulo correspondent, our correspondent in Brazil, Brian Muir, on earlier So we thought, hey, there's a tie-in. Again, the question from hell is, what's that scented candle you just lit? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen following our next guest to see if you have one. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, sorry, in two guests, my mistake, we'll reveal how President Bush may not be a fascist, he's just a patrimonialist, and we'll find out what that is. We'll discuss Russia beyond Putin, and that's something Russians are already doing as term limits keep Putin from running for re-election in 2024. We'll hear from our man on all things beer, who will be here to talk about beer in our annual final segment of the year. Here on This Is Hell, not to fear, it's the year in beer. Finally, we'll have the final moment of truth for 2018 with Jeff Dorchin. And this time, Jeff can't win for losing and can't lose for winning. All that stuff plus listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on this week's uh, Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, the question from hell. We'll also have listeners to thank for supporting This Is Hell listeners to thank for sharing the show online and what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry, live from the nightmare of want. This is hell. Is Donald Trump a fascist? A lot of his critics 
have said that Trump is, to varying degrees, a fascist. But is that accurate? And what happens when we place our fascist imaginary within an early 20th century historical context? Here to help us get to the bottom of this Trump is a fascist thing, sociologist Dylan Riley, author of the New Left Review article, What is Trump? Dylan is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome to This is Hell, Dylan. Thanks for having me. Dylan is Director of Graduate Studies at Berkeley's Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. You quote a past guest on our show, Timothy Snyder, who you describe as a Cold War liberal. You also cite other liberals at Yale and Cambridge, as well as former Republican advisor Max Boot, liberal neocon Robert Kagan, eco-Marxist John Bellamy Foster, queer theorist Judith Butler, who's also been on our show, social Democrat Jeffrey Ely, uh, and anarcho-syndicalist Mark Bray, all claiming that to some some degree, Trump is a fascist or has, at the very least, fascistic tendencies or traits that should concern everyone. Why is there seemingly a consensus across the political spectrum, I guess outside of where Trump supporters exist, uh, why, do, why do we see this analysis of Trump at least acting in a fascistic way from a variety of political views? Why is this view more than only partisan ranting? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Um, I think that one way of understanding it is that, you know, in, it's it's the same kind of thing that Marx talks about in the 18th Romero, that we can only kind of understand our present moment through the application of categories that, you know, we have received from the past. And, you know, people sort of reach for the, for the uh, examples of the 1930s. Uh, in a way, because I think we haven't constructed uh, adequate conceptual tools for grasping, you know, the moment that we're in today. And that's kind of, you know, so, so we have these kind of false analogies um, that are, you know, strikingly widespread across the political spectrum. I think that's perhaps the thing that's so remarkable about the kind of discussion about uh, Trump as fascist now. When we only place fascism in what you call that classical era of fascism in the 20s and 30s, when we only place it within that era, how well do we understand what fascism is when we only see it existing in that form of fascist Italy, in that form of Nazi Germany? Well, again, uh, very good question. Um, I think that uh, it's important to uh, understand um, when we're trying to get some conceptual control of the current moment to try to figure out what are the underlying tendencies of the the politics of, for example, Trump. And, you know, uh, what I was sort of trying to do in the NLR article is to point out, at least one of the things I was trying to do was to point out that the, the tendencies uh, of these earlier interwar regimes are really very, very different from the underlying tendencies of uh, of, of the contemporary moment, and uh, perhaps most clearly you see that um, in the in the particular form that imperialism took in the sort of uh, you know early earlier part of the 20th century. I mean, all of these early fascist regimes were basically built for war. And they were about mobilizing their populations on a military basis. Um, I think that uh, the Trump, you know, regime, if we wanted to call it that, uh, is both not really uh, has 
not articulated a coherent imperialist project in that sense and has no capacity to carry through such a project. So I also happen to think that the U.S. the underlying U.S. population is uh, fundamentally pacific in the sense that um, the idea of the population actually participating on a mass scale in you know kind of troops on the ground warfare is completely off the table and is something that the American right uh, would be loath to engage in. I mean, as we saw actually earlier in the Bush administration, the way that they conducted. Um, obviously, the, uh, the the second Iraq War, uh, how how important it was for them to, uh, you know, prevent any kind of mass mobilizing warfare. So that's a huge difference. That's one huge difference. So, does the process of neoliberalism and the celebration of the individual does that undermine, or to what degree does that undermine? the potential for the kind of mass mobilization that is needed to have the kind of fascism from the classical era of fascism in the 20s and 30s? I think it's a very, again, a very astute observation. I think that's, that, that's right. The, the fragmentation of political organizations, the, you know, the individualization of, um, you know, every aspect of life um, that, you know, have been documented, I mean, perhaps best all by Wendy Brown and her book on destroying the the demos, um, you know, really does place a certain kind of limit on the sorts of mobilizations that, you know, you could engage in with, with mass politics in the era of, 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 of classical fascism. And um, and this is not to say that that um, you know Trump is not dangerous or that you know we shouldn't be we we are entering some kind of very new period. Um, it's just to say that we need to figure out exactly what that period is, rather than sort of label taking taking off the shelf, as it were, the worst label we can find and slapping it on on the administration. You know this. One of the things I was thinking about when I was reading your article is that comparisons to this era, the 1922 to 1939, as you put it, the era of classical uh, fascism, comparisons to this era were also made in the run-up to and during the fallout from the financial collapse of 2008, which led to the Great Recession. The name itself was a historical reference to the Great Depression, which ran from, you know, 1929 to 1939 or along the same era as the classical era of fascism. Even back in the 1980s, people started using the phrase the next Hitler for the United States' next targeted enemy. Are commentators any more obsessed with the 20s and 30s than other eras? And if so, why? Why does it seem that commentators so often go back to the 1920s and 1930s to somehow give historical context or justification for their arguments? Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, let, me, let me sort of pick apart two elements of it. One, let's focus in on the term fascism itself. Um, there's something very interesting about the term, and, and that is... Um, you know, it's actually a term that is, can be, is, is transversal. It can be used across the political spectrum. So remember, I mean, it's not just that, that people were talking about fascism, uh, you know, when they were describing um, Saddam Hussein, for example. But, of course, the American far right also described Obama as a fascist threat. Um, 
so there is this weird way in which I think this is one of the very few terms in our political lexicon. I mean, um, you you couldn't imagine, for example, someone from the left describing Trump as a Stalinist, right? Um, but uh, fascism, for some reason, of course, is, is is always available from sort of all points of the political um, spectrum. It represents uh, a kind of absolute evil or something of that sort, um, and 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 that is an interesting kind of phenomenon that I suppose has to do with the way that we think about what the Second World War was. It's a kind of, in a sense, a kind of, you could say, unconscious reflection of the period of the popular front in, in, in some kind of um, regard. Now, in terms of the 1930s generally as the crucible for thinking about politics, I actually, I guess if I was just, this is very off the cuff in a sense, because I haven't thought deeply about this question, but I would say uh, you, you, that in, in one way the 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 period um, the period of the in the interwar period is really in some ways you could say it's the last moment um, that's available to us when you think about their, the the political possibilities as really being open in in the sense that. The question of how uh, you know a modern industrial society might be governed was the, a central issue, and there were really um, sharply different alternatives that were obviously on the table. So, in that sense, it may be natural that we always kind of go back to that moment when thinking about you know what's happening in the contemporary period. It lends a kind of drama to the story. Um, you know, the, the the period after 1945 is. You know, up until you know, I would say, 2008 is a, is a period of um, you know relative closure. You could say, at least in the core of the capitalist world, in terms of you know what what kind of models of rule were available. And this is this was, of course, the observation you know that people like Francis Fukuyama were making about the end of history and so on. The models for the different types of regimes were their variability was within a very limited band. You could say. Are there different types of fascism? Are commentators and pundits, analysts, are they focusing on a 1922 to 1939 brand or style of fascism while complete while a completely different kind of fascism could or can emerge? Are they are they distracted for, from fascism by their focus on 1922 to 1939 fascism? Yeah, I mean that's a kind of a common, I guess response you could say that is to say that well there's a new there's a different fascism for every period it takes a different form in different periods and so on um i don't know i suppose um from my perspective the important thing is to probably try to figure out what is going on uh and and try not to kind of i'm not sure what you know what the purpose is of getting caught up to a certain extent in, 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 in words. Um, so is it true that, I mean, so we could think about it more broadly and say, look, the question that I think is being posed in a way by the contemporary period is the question of the relationship between capitalism and, and democracy, right? That is to say, to what extent 
to what extent is, is, is capitalism compatible with um, uh, liberal democracy uh, in you know, different historical periods of its development? And I think probably what we are, are going through at the, at the current moment is, of course, a sort of inflection point here. Um, and trying to, trying to understand uh, that is probably the, 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 the key thing um, that, that we should be doing. So I think a lot of the sort of, you know, a lot of the discussion about this is a new form of fascism or this is, you know, this is, um, you know, kind of repeat of the 1930s and so on. I think it obscures to a certain extent getting at that basic issue. Earlier, we were talking to John Patrick Leary, author of Keywords, The New Language of Capitalism, and we were talking about the discussion over the term neoliberalism, which he says not only is a a dumb argument, but it's also the wrong argument to have. It's distracting and it's dumb. So I started thinking about it when you were just talking about fascism and our issues with trying to, you know, or if you will, obsessing on this idea of the level to which President Trump might be a fascist. Is there, do you see a similar problem with fascism as there is with neoliberalism. That is a focus mm-hmm. on the term itself instead of what the term means. Yes, maybe. I, get, I, I would say that for me, the issue about neoliberalism is it, it, it functions to obscure a very specific thing, which is, that, which is capitalism. So there's a way in which, you know, the, the, the you know, what, what you know, there's the critiques of neoliberalism, this and that and the other. We we forget, of course, that this is just this is another regime uh, for governing capitalism. Yeah, in the case of fascism, I think um, you know maybe there is a there there is a similarity here. Um, I think um, again, you know, the the what we need to understand is uh, in a sense. Is that there is an old, there's a very limited degree to which you know capitalist economies uh, can be governed uh, democratically, and this is the underlying issue that we should be really discussing and thinking about, and um, maybe thinking more seriously about you know the nature of the state and its relationship to you know private accumulation, things of that sort. That I think is the thing that I would like to kind of push toward. That's sort of what I was trying to do toward the end of my article. In this era of fascism from 1922 to 1939, that covers the era of fascist Italy as well as Nazi Germany, during that time, as everybody knows, there was uh, imperialism and expansion, expansion done by both countries. Does fascism always embrace expanded imperialism? Can you be both fascist and isolationist because... We're seeing President Trump now saying that he's going to withdraw troops from Syria, and that would suggest that he's not as excited about imperialism as maybe other sectors of the U.S. government are. So can you be both fascist and isolationist? Do you have to be expansionist to be fascist? That's a, uh, I think that's really a central question. So here's what I would say about that. A lot of the things that we see as typically fascist, the marching around in, you know, um, fancy uniforms, obviously, um, the, uh, the Judea side, um, the, um, you know, the, the, the militarism and so on. These things are 
very, very deeply linked to imperialism. Uh, Hitler's Mein Kampf is, to a large extent, an imperialist tract. Um, so if you're thinking about fascism in its classic form, it's just um, linked by an umbilical cord to the idea of territorial um, expansion. And as you rightly point out, the um, Trump uh, foreign policy that we've just seen in the last two days is, of course, the, the threat that he poses. Uh, is a threat to a pre-existing uh, hegemon, right? And it's quite remarkable to see uh, this conflict um, playing out. Um, he, I think, um, as you say, he's in the uh, kind of venerable tradition of uh, American isolationism. That's what his, um, that's what his kind of, uh, to the extent that we can identify a foreign policy, and of course, when you're talking about Trump, it's always a little strange to talk about policy, right? Because uh, that always seems to be attributing a kind of coherence to things that I'm not sure they always have. Um, but what you see, obviously, is the a kind of retrenchment back within you know, to the, 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 the country itself. And that's super, super important because it means that, it, you know, the um, sorts of capacities that these interwar fascist regimes had to whip up popular, you could say, fanaticism in a certain way, those are not as available for Trump because the domestic policies of fascism and its foreign expansion were tightly linked to one another. So if you have someone who is essentially saying we, we should withdraw from the world and pull inward and do this and that, well, <clears throat> that's going to that's gonna lead to, I believe, a, a very different sort of domestic politics than what you get with fascism. A very ugly sort in many respects, but not one that um, can generate uh, the sort of mass mobilization uh, that, that you get in, the, in, these, in these fascist cases. Um, so this is my kind of take on that. And you write where Trump has had room to determine the character of the executive. He has operated less as a modern bureaucratic party leader than as a patrimonial household head. What do you mean by patrimonial household head? And how would that distinguish him from his predecessors? Is he the first patrimonial household head in the White House? Um, that's a, again, that's a great question. So, um, uh, these categories come from the great, you know, German sociologist, Max Weber, who, uh, you know, tried to develop a kind of typology of different forms of what you could say political power or forms of domination, right? Now, the, the thing that I'm trying to say there, basically, is that, um, the United States, obviously, in, a, in kind of general terms, modern, bureau, modern states are run along bureaucratic lines, right? And in a bureaucracy, the official uh, is basically um, <coughs> committed to the office. And the office um, is, the, is the thing toward which the official has, has uh, loyalty. And um, in, with, with Trump, obviously... What you see is um, a kind of systematic replacement or a systematic attack on the notion of loyalty to office. And, of course, it starts, in a sense, at the very top, because uh, I don't think that Trump 
understands himself really as the occupant of an office. Um, and what I would say about what you were saying before, you know, well, is, have there been other kind of patrimonial figures? There's a patrimonial kind of element to all White Houses. I mean, the very terminology of our politics is obviously the is, is the terminology of the household, the cabinet, the White House, all these kind of things. But, you know, I would say that, you know, most U.S. presidents in one way or another have been figures that have been, you know, tied to a kind of a party apparatus. They see themselves in some sense as occupants of an office that supersedes them and, and will survive them and so on and so forth. I think Trump's entire conception is, is quite different. So he exaggerates, in a sense, and radicalizes this patrimonial element. I don't think he, I think that is his basic model of, um, of rule, right? And in the, in the news media, in some, they describe this as a transactional model, but it's, that's not really right. The point is about uh, personal, personal loyalty. Um, now, the thing about that form of power, actually, especially in the context of a giant, uh, you know, state like, uh, you know, in the United States, is it's basically weak. And it cannot, it's extremely difficult um, to run a modern giant bureaucratic state along kind of patrimonial lines. And that is in some way what Trump is, is doing. And that's in some sense what's creating all of this massive turmoil. This is in any case my, my suggestion or my analysis. So the patrimonial household had demands purely personal loyalty, right? Not loyalty to office and not loyalty really to an ideology or to a cause, um, of which there's very little in evidence, in my view. Seems like his only cause is loyalty to Trump himself. Uh, we have right. uh, one last question for you. Let me make sure I'm getting your bio correct here. Da, 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 da. We are talking to sociologist Dylan Riley, author of the New Left Review article, What is Trump? Dylan is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. He's also director of graduate studies at Berkeley's Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. One last question for you, Dylan, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response, and I believe that's the category this one will fall in. You write, this pervasive politicization of the institutions and treaties of the neoliberal state may have unintended consequences. In the 2018 congressional elections, there is no doubt that Trump bore much responsibility for a result unprecedented over the past 50 years, a 49% turnout in a midterm. In this basic sense, Trump's ascendancy has not resulted in the erosion of American democracy, but rather acted as a shot of adrenaline to a moribund system. Is Trump then not a threat to democracy, but good for it? Paradoxically, I think you, you could say yes, because of the energy that he has provided to the opposition. So that would be that I, I, I do think that's that that's true. Uh, obviously, the political situation is open. It remains to be seen. But uh, the, the the way that he's energized, uh, you know, forces of, you could say, movements, forces of progress is pretty uh, remarkable. And the other thing that I, I would hope that Trump has done uh, is to expose the big flaws in the American kind of constitutional setup. Uh, and, and this is something that I think deserves a, a much wider uh, discussion.
So in that, in that sense, yes, you know, in the sense to the extent that he mobilizes his opposition, he's good for democracy. Yeah, Alex Coburn used to always tell me, vote for the person who is going to do the most to destabilize the government. That person's what we need. That's the person that we need to actually have real transformative change. And he said, don't be surprised if it's somebody who is not somebody from the left. So again, Alex proved himself very prophetic. Thank you for being on our show, Dylan. I really appreciate the conversation. This is a fascinating article, and everybody should go check out your writing over at New Left Review. I really appreciate you being on the show this week. Thanks a lot for having me. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked were written while I was high. Really, really high. That's why they're so incisive. This is hell. What happens when we think of Russia as Putin and Putin as Russia? When we completely identify one with the other, is that all there is to Russia? That it's just Putin? We'll assess Russia beyond Putin when we talk to Tony Wood, author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War. Tony is a member of the editorial board of New Left Review. Alex, I have a question for you, sir. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I'm uh, getting a Ricola. See, now you understand that eight ball situation. Alex, what did you share this week on social media? Let me take this Ricola out of my mouth. Uh, I shared an article that people really liked a lot this week uh, from The Independent, and it was on a group called Lesbians and Gays Support the Migrants. And earlier this week, that group hacked the advertisements in the London Underground and changed them around with instructions on how to stop deportations that you see happening. Oh, yeah, those were great. That was fantastic. What was the name of the guy that we had on from uh, Britain who was... Uh, talking about Vivian Raoul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, Dog Section Press has a bunch of stuff out that I want to talk to you about, uh, talking with them in the future because they're really good. Um, Also, a real-life magazine piece on consumer rating systems. Uh, That is one of my favorite websites that I found this year, Real Life Mag, that just covers a lot of the intersection between um, the Internet and real life uh, and (laughs) capitalism and just the way technology is shaping how we act and see each other. So there's a really good piece on what happens when we rate people less than five stars. (laughs) Uh, And then also a really great uh, Ed Bermilla piece in The Baffler called Sleeping Rough in the Mattress Economy. I think that describes a lot of... um, uh, describes a lot of post-Generation X uh, experience for people in capitalism. Uh, It was really great. Also on Twitter... I uh, asked, I posted, what is the leftist thing to do if you're at a party at someone else's place and a plate of deviled eggs is just stinking up the room you're in? I'm not saying what party I was at. I had a lot of fun, by the way, last week. Uh, And I had a lot of responses for what I should do. But instead, I just stayed true to myself and I complained about it on Twitter and went home. I uh, I didn't know that that was happening. You know, I never get to the food table at my annual holiday party at my house. Never. I, I wanted to take decisive action. And just move the plate of deviled eggs because it was next to all the uh, all of the sweet pastries and things like that. And like those deviled eggs, uh, no offense to the person who made them, they were good. I ate them, I ate two of them, but uh, it was like another person in the room. <laughs> so I wanted to I wanted to put them out on the balcony, uh, but then I thought. I don't have the right to do this in someone else's house, do I? Sure you do. Oh, okay. Well, next year. Especially when people aren't looking. Yeah. Uh, next year, maybe. Anything else you want to mention? Uh, that's Oh, uh, on Instagram, a, uh, a sharp-eared listener noticed on our Patreon pod a couple weeks ago that, we were, that I was playing a, a, a permaculture video uh, when I was getting the levels and everything set up, and he correctly identified who was that permaculture video person, uh, the host. And so we had a nice exchange about that, and I posted it on Instagram. So, uh, if wow. You're, yeah. And wow. They, they, 
he he he's like a name that tune thing. It was out of maybe seven seconds of a snippet of audio, he could tell who it was. So wow. uh, shout out to Charles Dowling. Our uh, listeners are an interesting lot, my friend. <laughs> a very interesting lot when they can do a name that tune thing with a permaculture show host. That's pretty amazing. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook after 192 respondents. So far, we have the highest rating possible, five out of five stars. If you rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, we'll read your rating and comment on the air like these five-star ratings we received this week. Ron writes, This Is Hell is a lively antidote to routine misinformation. I like that. That's good. Marie also gave us five stars, as did Anthony, who writes, The show has in-depth interviews with authors, entertaining bits, and the moment of truth. You're not going to mention another possible tagline for the show later on during uh, listener feedback, if we get to it, actually. But man, Ron, I'm starting to think, maybe one of our new taglines should be, Lively Antidote. This is hell, your lively antidote to routine misinformation. I like disinformation there, maybe. Go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and give us five stars so I don't have to. And if you do and leave a comment, I'll read yours on the air. And this week's question from hell is, what's that scent? <laughs> what's that scented candle you just lit? What's that scented candle you just lit? All replies read on air following our next guest. This week's winner gets a copy of a book we are not featuring on This Is Hell in 2018. Former Brazil President Lula da Silva's new book, Truth Will Prevail, Why I Have Been Condemned. Again, the question from hell is, what's that scented candle you just lit? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen following our next guest to hear all the responses and to find out if you have one. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, we'll discuss Russia Beyond Putin. And that's something Russians are already doing, and term limits keep Putin from running for re-election in 2024. We'll hear from our man on all things beer, who will be here to talk about beer in our annual final segment of the year here on This Is Hell. Not to fear, it's the year in beer. Finally, we'll have the final moment of truth for 2018 with Jeff Dorchin. And this time, Jeff can't win for losing, can't lose for winning. All that stuff. Plus, hopefully we'll get to listener feedback. We'll tell you what happened on this week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting this is hell, others for sharing the show online, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. This is not the media. This is hell. Speaking of media... The U.S. media only seems to see Putin when they report on Russia and nothing beyond Putin. It's as if Putin is Russia, but is he and can Russia operate as it does now without Putin, which is something everyone should be considering as term limits and Putin's presidency will uh, will be ending Putin's presidency in 2024. Here to help us get past all of this Russia is Putin and Putin is Russia stuff 
Tony Wood is author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War. Welcome to This Is Hell, Tony. Thanks. My pleasure to be on here. Tony is a member of the editorial board of The New Left Review. Tony is author of 2007's Chechnya, The Case for Independence. And if you're wondering, that is the same New Left Review that we just uh, featured an article from with Dylan Riley on If Trump is a Fascist. If you haven't heard that interview, go back shortly after our show. Go to thisishell.com and you can hear that interview in its entirety. Uh, You write, it is hard to think of Russia today without thinking of Vladimir Putin, perhaps more than any other major national leader. He personifies his country in the eyes of the outside world. How accurate is our vision, our depiction of Russia, when we see Russia as Putin and Putin as Russia, does that mislead us from understanding Russia more accurately than we should? Absolutely. I think that is the case. Um, and that's the main reason I gave the, the book the title it has, that really, when I say Russia without Putin, I'm not calling for regime change. It's really more a question of, uh, it's an analytical gambit, right? That we need to look at Russia the country, and once you see beyond the personality who happens to be in charge of it now, you have to ask a series of very different questions, and the relative importance of Putin uh, you know, declines somewhat. You talk about his popularity, how well he does in the elections. Does Putin have a monopoly on the message within the media and to the public, or is he so popular that the media simply seeks him out? Is his popularity the result of a government mandate, or simply by popular choice? I think it's a bit of both. And I think partly because he's been the incumbent for so long that he just dominates the media landscape and the political landscape in a way that is quite hard for people to change. I think one thing that one does have to bear in mind, though, is the degree to which Putin's centrality is not something that has just organically happened, right? That it's a very curated uh, artifact. Uh, and a lot of people have put in a lot of time to create this image and reinforce it. So really, when the Western media is uh, overemphasizing Putin's importance there, they're not just distorting the view we have of Russia. They're buying into a very specific uh, political project to emphasize his importance as well. So do they emphasize his importance at their own risk? If these people are critics of Putin, are they empowering him by exaggerating his importance? I think so, very much, yeah. I think it, it does tend to reinforce his power and, and to reinforce the sense that there is no one else who really matters in the Russian political landscape and that there are no alternatives. And I think this also has repercussions within Russia domestically. It's very hard for people within Russia to conceive of a country of the country being run by anyone else. You know, there are, There's a whole generation of people who've grown up now knowing nothing but Putin, uh, and to the extent that it's very hard for people to imagine a replacement. But um, but as you said at the, at the top of the segment, it's, it's, that's going to happen in 2024. So so people need to start being able to imagine that. And part of that process is thinking what what a Russia without Putin would look like. What it would happen if someone else were in charge. I was about to ask you how much of his popularity is tied to his lack of popularity in the West, and I still want to know the answer to that question. But uh, more importantly, now because of something you were mentioning earlier, how much does Russiagate contribute to that popularity of Putin within Russia? Is his popularity tied to the lack of popularity elsewhere? And it, does that lack is that lack of popularity fueled by Russiagate? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think in a general sense, uh, a Russian leader not being so popular in the West is 
plays well domestically in Russia, certainly. I think there is this sort of generalized feeling that that Russia was too uh, too passive, too uh, disorganized, too, gave too much to the West in the 1990s. And so any leader, Putin or otherwise, who had somehow reasserted Russia's presence in the 2000s was going to be popular. And so Putin certainly did that and was unpopular in the West as a result of that. So I think people in Russia, you know, speaking very broadly, tend to see the Western negative reaction to Russia's leaders as being uh, a rejection of uh, a stronger Russia, or at least stronger than it was in the 1990s. Whether Russia gets specifically plays into that, I'm less sure. I think one of the curious features of this whole Russiagate story is the degree to which uh, the Western media and the Western reading public is obsessively focused on Russia in a way that Russians are not obsessively focused with the West in the same uh, on the same wavelength. See what I mean? That so this is one of those rare cases where people in a particular country are much less interested in the West than the West is in them on this particular point. Um, and I think at a certain point, the Russia Gate stuff may may rebound on Russia's current leaders if it gets in the way of a normalization with the West. If it means relations with the West just keep getting worse and worse and make any kind of rapprochement impossible, I think that will eventually be unpopular. How much is Putin a creation of Western policy toward Russia uh, following the Soviet the fall of the Soviet Union is is the government of Vladimir Putin to some to what extent is that blowback to Western policy in pushing capitalism and not pushing democracy very much on Russia in the 1990s? Yeah, this is a really good point. I mean, I, I try and develop this argument at, at a greater length in the book. I mean, there's this general perception that. In the 1990s, you had the Yeltsin government, which was chaotic and somewhat disorganized, but nonetheless democratic and pushing through a free market transformation. And then all of a sudden in the 2000s, you get Putin, who is more autocratic, pushing through a more statist economic policy. And so there's this idea of a contrast between these two men and these being two very different periods. And actually, in the book, I try and uh, overturn that myth. I think really that Putin comes out of the Yeltsin era in a very direct you know, he's the direct successor. Uh, he continues a lot of uh, Yeltsin's work in terms of maintaining the uh, neoliberal economic policy and extending it in some uh, aspects. Uh, and so really what you see is a, is a shift of emphasis in some areas, but really what Putin does is consolidate a system that Yeltsin built. So I see a lot of very significant continuities uh, instead of a break between the two. And so to that extent, the Putin regime is really a product of those uh, free market reforms of the 1990s that threw up a, a nominally democratic government uh, that carried through a free market transformation and is very committed to uh, capitalism and the principle of private wealth. Uh, and that's what Putin is. He's committed to all of those things. Um, the other key thing to bear in mind really is that a lot of the uh, sort of autocratic features of the Putin era, the election rigging and so on, were very much present under Yeltsin. The difference is really that the West was. Uh, uh, supportive of Yeltsin and, uh, you know, in many ways enabled his election rigging and various other kinds of authoritarian behavior. Uh, the obvious one being in 1993, there was a standoff between Yeltsin and the parliament. Yeltsin sent in tanks and literally bombed the parliament into submission. Uh, and that kind of behavior was widely applauded in the West. Uh, Putin has not done anything remotely as dramatic as that uh, in, in Russia domestically. 
Um, but he is obviously much more uh, criticized for being an authoritarian figure. But again, what I try and emphasize in the book is really the points of commonality and continuity between these two men and these two periods. So there are those here in the United States who just view Putin or Russia as Putin. Putin is Russia and that he is an authoritarian, uh, even to the point of being a dictator despite being elected. You were talking about vote rigging that happened during Yeltsin, and that's continued on during the uh, Putin government. How legitimate is the leadership of Vladimir Putin, or is that even uh, an inappropriate word to use? Because what would you say to somebody who says this guy took over Russia? The only reason that he's in power is because he's an illegitimate leader. He fixed the system to put himself in power. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two aspects to this that are worth uh, bringing out. One is that, um, I mean, certainly I have no uh, sympathy or uh, positive views on Vladimir Putin himself or his policies, so I just should make that clear. None of this is said with any sympathy or support for the man. Um, but one thing that's notable about him is that he is uh, very much a sort of a stickler for the letter of the law, not the spirit of it. So if he has to win a democratic mandate, he will win a democratic mandate. Like, some of it is done through rigging, uh, but essentially he will adhere to the letter of the Constitution. And this, for example, is why in 2008 uh, he left the office of president, became prime minister for four years, and then came back as president because that was what the Constitution said you had to do. He could have rewritten it, he could have done away with elections, but he's not that kind of authoritarian. If you like, he's a, he's a, a sort of literalist uh, authoritarian Democrat. I don't know if that's uh, a concept that makes much sense, but he does do what the law requires. But the other aspect that's, that's interesting is that there is undoubtedly a lot of election rigging in Russia. But on the other hand, I think a lot of the time, and certainly Putin himself, would win a clean election if there were no rigging. On current trends, as far as I can understand this, and as far as all the poll data and you know political science literature within Russia I've looked at, he does have a genuine support base that would probably enable him to win a free and fair election currently, um, mainly because of a lack of viable other candidates who have a, a large organized political structure to carry forward a presidential campaign. There are challenges, certainly, and one of the curious features of the current regime in Russia is that they are very quick to stamp down any kind of challenge, no matter how small. Um, and from the outside, this seems to be somewhat irrational, right? That you have a challenger who may pull in, you know, 3% of the vote. Why not let them run? And then you have the appearance of a democratic contest, but you still win with 60% of the vote, say, for example. Um, but this is a system that is very keen to just not to make sure that no risks are taken. So any opposition at all, you've got to just clean it up and then proceed to hold uh, what looks like a democratic election. You have the facade of democracy without the substance, essentially. Um, and I think these are the sort of curious features of the regime where it will eventually run into some kind of problem where you uh, you have to rig something on a scale that just becomes unrealistic. Um, and in that regard, I mean, I don't want to send your, your listeners too far afield, but it's not, to me, it doesn't seem wildly dissimilar to what happened in Mexico in the 1990s, for example, where the uh, the PRI regime, you know, they stole a couple of elections, certainly very clearly rigged, and then eventually they they ran out of steam to a point where you could not rig an election on that scale and still uh, you know, run the country. And I think something similar to that may happen with this regime eventually. 
you write by themselves. The, these three words might be read as straightforward, and those are anything but Putin. Uh, these three are uh, Russia without Putin. These three words might be read as a straightforward call for regime change, as you were just saying. That is not at all the interim or the intention of this book. My argument, rather, is that Western media coverage and analysis of Russia are overly fi- fixated on Putin's personality. Is that fixating on personality? Is that merely the nature of the news media beast here in the U.S.? Is this an indictment of the U.S. media focusing on personalities, not policies, especially when it comes to its international news coverage? Is this just the way that U.S. news media is, or is it in particular this way just with Putin? Um, I think it's a bit of both, certainly. There is a tendency in the media to, to, to focus on personalities, as you say, and these are much more convenient hooks. And this is also just the way our you know, celebrity-driven culture functions. And this is not just in the U.S., this is true in Europe, too. And you know, and this is why you have so many countries now whose, poli- whose political landscape is being reduced to whatever surrounds a given individual, whether it's Putin in Russia or Erdogan in Turkey or Duterte in the Philippines, all of these uh, quote-unquote strongmen have become the kind of obsessive focus of media attention. Um, some of that is, is definitely a generic feature of the way media works, I think. But I think it's particularly exaggerated in the case of Russia. And I think because Putin has been around for so long, it's just accumulated more and more uh, force. Um, and it's become increasingly counterproductive, I think. Uh, one of the things I found while working on this book was that really the the general level of knowledge about Russia uh, at the moment is, I personally think, probably lower than it was during the Cold War. And I think if you stop and think how perverse that is, right, during the Cold War, these were systems that were, to some significant degree, closed off from each other. It was not that easy to travel between the Eastern Bloc and certainly Russia and the West. Uh, it was much more difficult to, to get visas and so on. And now, nominally, it's easier to go back and forth, but people are much less well-informed. And so I wanted to try and, you know, do my bit to reverse that lack of understanding, but also just to describe it, that you have this really perverse outcome where the more Russia, you know, supposedly has joined the world since the end of the uh, of the Cold War, the less we've understood it. You write the obsession with Putin's persona effectively reduces a whole range of political economic and social questions to the swings of one individual's mood or morality. At best, this is highly misleading, distracting us from the broader structural forces that have done so much to shape Russia's fortunes in the last few decades. What are those broader structural forces? And and are we intentionally ignoring those broader structural forces? What do we miss when we ignore those? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think one thing that people perhaps you know, understand on an on a general kind of intuitive level, but haven't really been able to follow through the consequences of, is the the, the sheer uh, extent of the transformation that Russian society has been through in the last 20, 30 years. This is a really significant major upheaval uh, that's affected everyone alive, or at least everyone who was born and living, you know, in 1991. Really, it's not just a, a change of regime from communist to capitalist. This is a, a total transformation of your whole day-to-day working life, your interactions with other people, a really deep change in culture, but also in class identity. I spend a lot of time talking about changes in uh, class structure in Russia over that period of time. Uh, and so this is a really, really profound transformation. Um, and I think 
that has all kinds of interesting side effects in terms of how Russians perceive themselves, both day to day, both uh, you know in their individual lives, but also in their collective uh, national life, like what kind of country they think they are, what role they play on the world stage. I mean, more or less every uh, every stable point of orientation for for ordinary Russians has been taken away, and they've had to find a replacement. So. Part of the process for the last 20, 30 years has really been uh, reorienting themselves in the world. Um, and at the same time as that sort of systemic change has been happening, there's also been a lot of other changes that are very significant. For example, uh, economic shifts, very major. You know, this was uh, until, you know, the late 1980s, a major world industrial power. Admittedly, the industry was crumbling already and somewhat in decline, but nonetheless, Russia has been through a very rapid deindustrialization, um, and at the same time, it has uh, become increasingly dependent on exports of raw materials, um, which has two consequences that I think are just briefly worth mentioning here. One is that um, it has very uh, it, it makes the whole economy more volatile, uh, more dependent on swings and ups and downs in the global uh, commodity markets. That's number one. But secondly, you know the the country's main source of income does not employ that many people. Um, so this is, you know, the whole of the fate of the economy is really tied to a sector, a sector, excuse me, in which most people are not employed. So it has this sort of, you know, at least again in the Soviet Union, industry was a major employer. Some, some very large proportion of the population was employed in industry. And so the fate of industry, you could see that day to day. Whereas now the economy has become somewhat more kind of externalized to people's daily life and much more uh, alien and inexplicable, which I think has contributed to the disorientation that people feel at this time. Who, to whose benefit does Russia operate? And and I know that that might sound like a a leading question in some way. That you know, would somebody ask that of the United States? You know, to uh, whose benefit does the U.S. operate? And I would say that the U.S. operates. Well, uh, for those who work within the market, and the better you work within that market, and the better your ancestors worked within that market, the better the market works for you. And so the U.S. operates uh, at the benefit of those who work well within the market, I guess. Uh, to whose benefit does Russia operate? Um, I think that there's, there's two different criteria, really. I mean, on that level that you're describing, I mean, there is an element of that, that you've, you've had a... Uh... Uh, a market economy take root in Russia uh, in which, yeah, people who work well within that particular market framework are, are rewarded uh, to some extent that that's true. But then also the those opportunities within the market are very closely entangled with other forms of power, other forms of access to political power or connections. So there is a kind of an informal and formal uh, set of factors that weigh on people's fortunes. And so a lot of the people who've done very well have been people who had some prior connection to uh, a factory or like some sort of uh, connection in the Communist Party apparatus, and they managed to gain ownership of the factory, say. Or there's a lot of lingering connections with the old order uh, still hovering around. And then there are also people who managed to uh, do well out of the chaos of the 1990s who made their way you know, in the cracks of the system, essentially doing things that were semi-legal or not at all legal, um, and who have since managed to uh, legitimize their fortunes, if you like. Um, and then, you know, there are people who have enriched themselves just thanks to good luck of, you know, 
they they managed to uh, operate a concession of some kind or work in a bank, and that bank got hugely enriched thanks to some particular deal. I mean, I don't want to suggest that anyone who's done well in Russia is is involved in some kind of crooked dealings, because in a way that is how the market works, right? It rewards disproportionately on a uh, seemingly irrational basis, right? <laughs> and and I think some of that has happened in Russia. The real difference is the the closeness of the relationship to political power. And I want to emphasize that this is something a lot of analysis sees as being particular to the Putin era. But actually, this has been true throughout. This is true in the Yeltsin era as well, that a close relationship with political power was what enabled people to become rich. The difference really between Yeltsin and Putin in that respect is that it's just different people being enriched, but it's the same mechanism. You're right. Putin did not create this system, not, nor will his uh, removal from the scene alter its fundamental character. In order to understand Russia today, the West needs to shake off its obsession with Putin and look at what lies beyond the Kremlin walls. It needs, in other words, to learn to see Russia without Putin. All right, so what is that system? I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I, I have a different way of asking it. What is the system that he is currently operating, that he is currently being the administrator of? You mentioned how he has, uh, to a certain extent, unified the dominant class. He's unified his political party. He has an organization, a very large organization. Uh, That organization has a level of competence. All of these are characteristics that Dylan Riley was just uh, mentioning on our show in our discussion of whether Trump is fascist. He said that Trump isn't fascist. He doesn't have the organization. He doesn't have the competence. He's not trying to get the dominant class together. He's uh, breaking apart apart the party. Uh, There is no chance for mass mobilization in the United States that is necessary for the kind of fascism, at least from 1922 to 1939. So to what degree can we even say that this is fascism? After all, he has got the dominant class and his political party to have unity, and he has the organization and the competence to install fascism. Well, I would sound a note of caution on that, too, actually, in Russia, because one of the, the characteristic features of the Putin system uh, throughout, but also the 90s under Yeltsin too, was that this is a system which requires democratic legitimation, but is not overly keen on encouraging democratic participation. And that means they want people to turn out and vote when they're supposed to every four years, but they're not really interested in building a genuine mass movement. Uh, And so it's a curious feature that Putin has been in power all this time. And, you know, they've set up this, the ruling party, United Russia, has existed since uh, late 2000, early 2001, um, and, and, you know, controls the majority of seats in the parliament, uh, not just at the national level, but also at the regional level, the different regional parliaments. But there is markedly less enthusiasm among the Russian public for the party than there is for Putin as a person. Um, and so as a ruling party, this is a very... Uh, I would say, not a successful entity. It doesn't have any real mass appeal. I feel like there's no real loyalty among the public to the party. They just vote for it because it happens to be the ruling party. But, um, I mean, interestingly, uh, you know, there were just some elections held in Russia in September, uh, regional elections and local elections. And considering this is a ruling party that controls all access to, you know, the media, all the finances, it's the incumbent everywhere, they really perform very poorly and turnout is also always very low. So looking back to the criteria that you mentioned about having a kind of a mass 
movement. This is not, the Putin system doesn't really have a mass movement. It has, you could describe it, I, I think, as maybe mass acquiescence, but it's really not the same as the kind of energized mass support base that would be required for a, a fully sort of fascist project. That's, that's one thing that I think is very different. Um, and another thing is that the Putin regime really re relies on apathy to some extent. It doesn't rely on any kind of uh, mass engagement. The more apathetic the population, the better, as long as they just turn out and do what they're supposed to do every four years. Um, but the second thing, I think, is that really the, the Putin regime is not fascist for another important reason, which is that, um, I mean, fascism to some extent requires a kind of coherent ideological project as well, a coherent vision of some kind of corporatist transformation, if you like, I mean, in, in my understanding of this. And I think one of the interesting features of, again, of the Putin era is how ideologically uh, empty it has been. You know, uh, that it, it really is, it's a vast, it's a system that can contain a lot of different ideological currents. And Putin can tilt between these different currents depending on, you know, the, the, what is more powerful at the time, depending on the global economic climate. So in his early phase, in the early 2000s, he was much more markedly neoliberal. Uh, in the mid 2000s, he had a kind of slightly more statist turn. Um, increase in state ownership in, in certain key sectors. Um, when he came back in 2012, he had a much more uh, nationalist ideological uh, emphasis. Um, but all of these emphases continue to coexist within Putinism, if you like, represented by different factions within the government. So this is a very sort of plural, and I think not especially coherent project, ideologically speaking. Um, and I think that marks it out from fascism as well, that there is no in a way, it suits Putin not to decide which of these uh, tendencies to go for. He wouldn't go all out for any of them. So do you, would you characterize the debate within Russia today, the political uh, debate within Russia today, between whether they should be pursuing statism, nationalism, or neoliberalism? Is that kind of the heart of the Russian political debate today? Yeah, I think, well, it's certainly at the elite level, uh, there's a question of what kind of state they want whether they wanted to push on with a kind of much more, an even more neoliberal state, you know, really cut back the whatever is left of the social welfare infrastructure of the of the state. And that's something that, it, that they've been pushing on with a bit. You know, over this summer, they announced an increase in the pension age, uh, and they've been doing all kinds of other sort of austerity measures in Russia. This is called optimization, which involves closing hospitals, cutting back. Uh, doctor salaries, um, also in education, a lot more uh, what is called user fees, i.e. education is notionally free, but you pay more to use it. Um, so there's been a kind of neoliberal push within Putinism that's been consistent. And I think that, again, this is one of the things I think people overlook because they're busy looking at Putin and his KGB background and seeing him as some kind of, you know, return to the USSR. And that's not at all what's been happening on the ground in Russia. It's very much a, a, a neoliberal regime, I would say, with other ideological elements. Um, the current debate, or certainly again within the elite level, is to do with how much money Russia should be spending on its military versus some kind of modernization spending on infrastructure, health, education. Um, the, and this is one reason why the confrontation with the West, while it scores Putin certain points domestically, is not in their interest in the long run because they have to spend so much more on their military uh, as part of that confrontational stance. 
And at a certain point, that becomes uh, massively counterproductive for the country in the long run. And so there are these debates within the government. Uh, Putin, uh, his former finance minister, Alexei Kudrin, who is now in some free-floating sort of think tank role, but clearly still close to the government, he has been promoting, on the one hand, more neoliberal measures, increasing the pension age. But on the other hand, he's been saying, we don't need a military budget this size. What we need is to spend on roads, railway, infrastructure, and education. And so that, that really is where the future of the system will be played out. Will they, you know, engage in some useful modernization spending, or are they going to be doomed to a kind of confrontation with the West that eats up a chunk of the military budget? At the moment, it does seem like, you know, they have actually, again, this is passed over in much of the, the Western coverage, but they have cut the military budget two years running now. Uh, and the last cut was by something like 20%. It's quite significant. Um, so the question is whether that continues in that direction or whether there's a new spike in spending for some other reason. You write that the system's main priority has been to defend capitalism in Russia, if necessary, at the expense of democracy as the consistent resort to election as the consistent sorry consistent resort to election rigging from the 1990s to the present demonstrates. Here in the U.S. and especially on this show, we hear from critics who argue that the U.S puts profits before people. Is Russia the epitome of what the left criticizes about the right here in the U.S.? Is Russia the epitome of putting profits before people? Uh, I mean, yeah, not the only epitome. I think this is a consistent feature of a lot of governments worldwide, um, but it certainly does does epitomize that, that tendency. I mean, I guess one thing that, that's curious to me is is that Within the current climate, obviously, there's so much hostility between Russia and the West and a great deal of, uh, of contrast, supposedly, between these systems. But actually, I feel like they have a lot more in common than people realize. Um, and again, this was brought home to me. I was in Russia over the summer, and I attended a lot of these protests against the increase in the pension age. Um, and one of the things that's clear is that the, the IMF has been sending missions to Russia to run the rule over their economic policy. And the IMF is delighted with Russia. You know, they come back and give them these glowing reports about the macroeconomic policy and what they're doing with pensions and so on and so forth. Um, so really, the, in terms of the, the underlying uh, economic agenda of these states, Russia is much closer to the West than many people would realize. Very much closer to the West. You write many of uh, Putinism's worst features are rooted in the socioeconomic order that has been in place since the fall of communism. How much is the current kind of capitalism that Russia is experiencing? How much is that a creation of the West? Did the United did, did the West, did the U.S. and the rest of the West not bring democracy and capitalism as much to Russia as they brought the version of capitalism uh, of its era that they brought neoliberalism to Russia? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think there is this sort of consistent. Uh, emphasis in Western coverage of Russia on the idea that Russia's transfer, uh, Russia's transition to capitalism has been somehow incomplete, and that so what Russia has is not really capitalism, or it's capitalism somehow mitigated by remnants of the Soviet system, you know, uh, nostalgia for communism and and all of that. Whereas what I see is actually what Russia has is capitalism, and actually a lot of the features that people see as, as negative authoritarian culture, for example, those are actually features of the capitalism that Russia has. They're not, 
you know, vestiges of the past that are in the way. On the contrary, they're, they're part of the, of the way that capitalism was implanted in Russia in the 1990s. And the West absolutely played a very prominent role, not only in supporting Yeltsin and helping him maintain his power, and extending his term in office, for example, as many of your listeners will know, the U.S. played a direct role in stealing the 1996 Russian presidential election. But actually, on a very uh, granular level, um, there were U.S. advisors writing legislation for the Yeltsin government. Like a lot of the legislation uh, that privatized Russian industry was written by U.S. advisors to the Russian government. So uh, how much... You know, you talk about this kind of relationship that Russia thought that they were going to have with the United States and with the West in the post-Soviet era, and then the West thought that they were going to have a different kind of relationship. You call this a, a one-sided fantasy of Russia, that it was going to be a partner with the West and the U.S. Instead of being partners in global capitalism, how did the U.S. and the West view what their post-Soviet relationship would be with Russia? Well, this is an interesting question. I mean, I think I'm not totally clear what the... I think the West had different ideas that were in play about how to deal with Russia. Um, and it's really the more aggressive vision that has won out. There was initially an idea uh, that that the West could incorporate Russia as some kind of subordinate partner, right? Whether it would not be part of NATO or the EU, but it would be in close association with those structures as a kind of outside partner. Um, but I think... There was also a very uh, a powerful body of opinion, mainly within the U.S. foreign policy establishment, but also in European capitals that saw Russia as uh, inherently an antagonist, that sooner or later there would be antagonism. And the question is, one had to, you know, how to prepare for that. And you should definitively exclude Russia from those structures because it was going to, you know, ruin them or uh, be a spoiler within them at some later date. And that second current of opinion is the one that won out. It's worth thinking back to um, the expansion of NATO when that first began in the early 90s, that there was a current of opinion within the U.S. Uh, foreign policy establishment that was against NATO expansion. And this included uh, George Kennan, the original architect of containment. Uh, he called it a fateful error, uh, essentially that this would needlessly antagonize Russia and just set up the same kind of uh, uh, sort of uh, antagonistic structure that had obtained during the Cold War when there was an opportunity to have some some different kind of relationship. Um, so that's, that has, has been the, the Western sort of tilt, is, is towards a more aggressive view that, that sees Russia as outside of whatever structure the West has. Um, the problem really is that, that the West also does not want Russia to align with China or India or these other powers that are not sort of within Europe. So I think the real contradiction in Western policy towards Russia, or, the, or rather the, the aspect of Western policy that makes it particularly difficult to see how this is going to get better, is that there is really no place where Russia can be fitted, fitted comfortably. Uh, there is no role for Russia that I can see that the West is willing to accept, except as a uh, fully subordinate power. And unfortunately, I think no democratically elected Russian leader, Putin or anyone else, would be able to carry forward that policy. So I think we are going to be stuck in some kind of antagonistic uh, relationship with Russia for a while, unless the West really rethinks where it thinks Russia should fit in the world. 
You write, we need to discard several of the core assumptions behind most discussions of Putin's Russia. First, there is the widespread notion that Putin has overseen a nostalgic return to Soviet times, reversing the market reforms and democratization carried out by Yeltsin in the 1990s. And as we've discussed already, that's not the case. But this week, Newsweek reported a higher percentage of Russians regret the collapse of the Soviet Union than at any other time since 2004. According to a new survey by the Lovada Center, a Russian nonprofit organization, today 66% of Russian surveyed say that they regret the end of the Soviet Union and the fall of communism. Many Russians said that they regret losing the single economic system that existed in the Soviet Union, while others say that they miss living in a great world superpower. Older respondents expressed the most nostalgia. So to what degree? I mean, here we have Newsweek telling us that Russians, all they want is to be uh, go back to the era of the Soviet Union. To what degree is Russia and is Putin taking them back to the area, the era of being a Soviet, of being the Soviet Union, of being a world power again? Yeah, this is an interesting question. Like the the degree to which this nostalgia um, has any real political consequences and has any uh, actual embodiment in policy, if you like. I mean, I think certainly the fact that Putin has reasserted Russia's relevance on the world stage that that is a key part of its popularity. The idea that that whether or not Russia gets on with other countries, they at least have to take account of its interests. That is something that I think is widely popular. And again, not just Putin, but any Russian leader who did that would would gain popularity as a result of that. In terms of actual nostalgia for the Soviet Union, I think some of this, um, I think one has to remember, um, going back to what I was talking about earlier, that the degree of social transformation that this country has been through in the last 30 years, certainly that's, that's taken up a lot of uh, a lot of Russian people's lifetimes at the moment. Um, but they have been through that degree of social transformation, but at the same time through a kind of national crisis in terms of uh, the collapse of an empire, effectively. What is this country's role on the world stage? Uh, and and there's, a, there's been a, an increasing disproportion between that memory of uh, the importance of, of the Soviet Union, the scale of it, uh, its superpower status on the one hand, and on the other hand, Russia's current capacities, which are massively uh, lowered, and it's actually, you know, in global terms, it's, it's economically a mid-ranking uh, power, along with many others, militarily much diminished. So there's this mismatch between the memory of what they used to be and uh, the current capacities. And what I would say is that, you know, as someone who grew up in the UK, this sort of post-imperial syndrome is very common. Uh, and, and certainly, I think Britain, France, uh, other imperial powers have not dealt with this at all well either. There's a lot of uh, uh, political consequences that flow from this inability to handle the end of empire, and you could even see Brexit as part of that phenomenon. So I think Russia is not alone in having these difficulties in, in, in adjusting to a changed role in the world. And I, to some extent, I feel like this nostalgia really reflects uh, the difficulty of adjustment rather than being an actual program. I think if a politician arrived and said, yes, let's restore the Soviet Union, but we'll have to go and invade all these countries to do it, I don't think that would be popular. Uh, I mean, a real indication of this is the fact that um, the war with Ukraine was not popular in itself uh, in Russia. The, certainly, the Putin regime successfully portrayed uh, the post-Maidan government 
as supposedly a group of fascists and, you know, in the pocket of the West and so on and so forth. And that kind of antagonistic propaganda played well. But the actual military side of this conflict was not at all popular because Russians, with whatever uh, historical complexities and uh, contradictions, see themselves as being very closely tied to Ukrainians. They're very closely into, you know, a lot of intermarriage, a lot of movement between these spaces. And the idea of waging war in order to regain territory, I think, would be very alien to most Russians these days. So it's a, it's really, it's not a nostalgia that has an outlet in a political project, I would say. It's, it's a more, uh, it is about adjusting to Russia's new place in the world and regretting the loss of power, I think. And again, in global comparative terms, they're having difficulty, but I think they're not having as much difficulty as the UK has had you know, since uh, decolonization. Just a couple more questions for you, Tony. Is a new Russian revolution inevitable? And will it happen a lot sooner and easier than everyone thinks? Or does, not necessarily Putin, but the system that Putin works within have such a hold on Russia that the potential for it to be challenged is almost, you know, impossible? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think uh, it depends what you mean by revolution uh, to some extent, right? Whether you mean just the overthrow of a regime or whether you mean some massive sort of social upsurge of a kind of 1917 type. I think that kind of social revolution is not currently on the cards in Russia. I think um, society is much more atomized uh, and more uh, apathetic than, than that kind of social situation would would suggest. Um, and I think for the present regime does have a, a solid grip on uh, the political landscape, the, the, uh, the opportunities for political expression of uh, opinions contrary to the current regime are very limited. Um, but that being said, one of the interesting features of this regime is that it is on the one hand, it's, seeming, it's seemingly very solidly anchored. But on the other hand, I think it is actually quite brittle in some ways that for the reasons I was saying earlier, that it doesn't rely on mass mobilization or mass engagement so much as uh, mass acquiescence. Um, and I think if you have a, a regime that is sort of low intensity like that, it doesn't take that much for opinion to flip. If there is suddenly a more compelling alternative, some other project, some other leader figure or party or collective that promises uh, something more coherent and tempting for people, then I think opinion could shift pretty rapidly. So the question really is is, is uh, what the future of this particular system holds with or without Putin at the top, is whether it's headed for some kind of uh, more turbulent end uh, and its replacement by some kind of you know interim uh, coalition government that has to work out a new political structure, or on the contrary, whether there is just a democratic a transition of some kind, as I was describing to your listeners early, as in the case of Mexico, when the PRI lost power in the year 2000, and it was the opposition party that won with uh, Vicente Fox. So you could imagine that this kind of, uh, the, the Putin system would just run out of steam somewhat, and that would create space for a coherent political alternative to develop that would then be able to take power democratically. Um, I think the latter scenario uh, seems more likely to me of the two I've just laid out. But on the other hand, it's true that more likely than either of those is the continuation of this system uh, on some indefinite basis. Uh, and 
you know, in in more or less successful version of what it's doing now. So uh, maybe that's not a satisfactory answer, but I think those are the three options where we're going to see. Tony, one last question for you. We've been speaking with Tony Wood. He is author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War. He's a member of the editorial board at New Left Review. And if somebody has been just annoying you on a regular basis about this Russiagate thing, this is the book you need to get them for the holidays so they have a better understanding of Russia. Again, Tony Wood is the author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War. One last question for you, Tony. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. This one's a little bit silly, but uh, is Putin's Russia... The Russia that Ayn Rand always wanted. <laughs> yes, I actually think so. That's an easy question, though. That's, that's not a question from hell at all. I think she would love it. So sweet. All those fans of the Fountainhead who are listening right now, you should move to Russia. It's just waiting there that's for right. you. Who is John Galt? I'll tell you who he is. Vladimir Putin. That's who he is. Thank you so much for being on our show this week, Tony. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. As a Supreme Court justice once famously said, I love beer. And the final interview we do every year on This is Hell is a talk about the year in beer with our beer correspondent, Michael Roper, the co-proprietor of the Hopley 5148 North Clark Street, right at the border of the Andersonville neighborhood in Chicago. This year, there were brewery closings and a major supplier going under there were new alternatives to beer and people are actually making cannabis beer. We'll find out everything beer that is happening when we talk to Michael, whose bar, The Hop Leaf, has received many accolades, including being a winner of a 2016 Time Out Chicago Bar Award as one of the city's best bars. Find out more about The Hop Leaf at hopleaf.com and you can follow The Hop Leaf on Twitter at The Hop Leaf. I have to take care of some technical difficulties. Alex, what do we have going on in the next couple of weeks shows? Uh, the next two weeks, we're not going to be doing live shows, uh, but one of those two weeks, I'll be playing a best of 2018. And I think I'll get Chuck to handpick some of those. And then another project that actually I need Chuck's help on too, um, is a project that's been sort of a long time in the making. I've been really wanting to cover this is hell's coverage of the Occupy movement as that happened. Uh, this is, there's, maybe 15 interviews sitting on my desktop that I need to whittle down to four hours um, from the beginning of Occupy. I know Chuck was really proud of a point where he talked to Occupy representatives in three different cities all at once. Um, I don't know if that's ever made it on the air since, but I have that. I have a whole bunch of people. I Chris Hedges, Noam Chomsky uh, talking about Occupy. I already know how that interview is going to end with uh, people talking about why Occupy uh, failed, but it's going to be really interesting to revisit all of This Is Hell's coverage starting in uh, the early weeks of Occupy. I think oh, the first week after its uh, Zuccotti Park was taken, uh, we started talking about it on the show. It was before my time, so I'm really looking forward to putting together a big four, maybe five hour Occupy playlist. Oh, and Chuck, uh, Judith Butler was on the show. When was that? You know what? I think I'm confusing it with another uh, somebody by the name of Butler. Octa- I know I thought Octa- about- Octavia Butler was on the uh, show. No, no. Jim- Jimmy Butler was on the show. No, I'm thinking it's somebody whose name close to that about Venezuela. I can't remember now. I know. In passing, I was like, "Oh, I know that name." And then I realized right after I said that, I was probably wrong. What are you going to do? Speaking of our horrible business model, where we stupidly 
put people before profits. On Patreon this week, that nut job Nick Pemberton, he wrote another article, a counterpunch about me. The first one claimed I'm America's leading intellectual, which is a claim Nick made on Noam's 90th birthday. Feeling bad about it, Nick followed that with a column the next week, demoting me to America's second leading intellectual behind Noam Chomsky. Of course, the whole thing is ridiculous, and it's if it's not sarcasm, I'll eat my delicious hat. But I made my case for me being the world's worst person on Patreon this week, patreon.com slash thisishell. And I used as evidence how I acted and what I learned on This Is Hell this year. We then shared our interview from 10 years ago this month simply to hear what we were up to 10 years ago on This Is Hell. And the interview we found was with author, education theorist, 1960s anti-war activist, and member of the Weather Underground, Bill Ayers. Bill is now a retired distinguished professor of education and senior university scholar at the University of Illinois at Chicago, my alma mater. We talked with Bill to get his take on the election of Barack Obama as President of the United States as he had been elected, Barack Obama, just a month earlier. Bill had just posted the column, What a Long, Strange Trip It's Been, because nobody's ever called anything that before, looking back on a surreal campaign season, and that was in In These Times. So a weatherman, part of the weather underground, giving his analysis on the 2008 presidential election of Barack Obama a month after Obama was voted into office. This is how is definitely not the media because the media would not ask a former member of the Weather Underground to analyze a presidential, a presidential election. But you can only hear that and another 100-plus Patreon podcasts we have done already each featuring a new monologue from me in a classic interview that is otherwise not currently available online by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. Special thanks this week goes out to Samuel F. for joining us on Patreon this week. We now have 316 subscribers to our Patreon podcast, and I did a little math this week to try and figure out how many subscribers we need to make this show sustainable, and I came up with 3,982, so we're only 3,000. 666, short of our This Is Hell goal. And you you can help us get closer to that goal by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. On next week's Patreon podcast, I explain why our listeners, our, our listeners are so amazing and what our future together may hold. And Alex will be selecting next week's classic interview. Alex, did you pick a classic interview next for next week or not? Uh, oh shoot! Shoot! What was the name of Chalmers Johnson? I think oh, yeah. I, I've been I've been I promised people. Uh, I played one of Chalmers Johnson's post nine eleven interviews, and people really loved it. We have two more to go, and I think I'm gonna do that this week uh, because that it's he's incredible. I really uh, I really like him. He's one of my favorite guests. So this is how. But you can only hear next week's and over a hundred other exclusive Patreon podcasts by subscribing at this is, or sorry at patreon.com slash this is hell. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is. What's that scented candle you just lit? What's that scented candle you just lit? All replies read right now. The winner gets a copy of a book we are not featuring on This Is Hell this year. Former President uh, Brazil President Lula da Silva's Truth Will Prevail, Why I Have Been Condemned. Again, the question from hell is, what's that scented candle you just lit? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, to still have a chance at winning this week's prize. Again, President Lula da Silva's book, Truth Will Prevail. 
Alex, you have all the responses to this week's question from hell just because. What's that scented candle you just lit? Sarah M. says, whale blubber, Ahab. <laughs> Scott M. says, gefilte fish. Max I. says, victory. <laughs> Joanne H. says, bayberry. Pete V. says, sunless void. <laughs> Joshua L. says, dangling Chad. What's that scented candle you just lit? Ronaldo M. said, no scented candles. They could harm my pet birds. <laughs> what you smell is spaghetti sauce on my stove. Pet, pet bird would be a nice scent. <laughs> Greg M. says, beef salivary glands and mechanically separated chicken, a.k.a. Mexican chorizo scented. Fabio L. says, candle, I'm burning my Alexa. (laughs) Matt P. says, warm vanilla fart concealer. (laughs) What's that scented candle you just lit? Mitchell C. says, unholy dimensions which only the dead and the moonstruck can glimpse. (laughs) It's not from the Lovecraft line, I suppose. Uh, Mike M. says, cucumber cucumber frack water. Anthony S. says, melted plastic green army soldiers. Chris S. says, that cheap vanilla candle smell. Yeah, you know the one. Marshall W. says, Harold's Chicken Shack Dumpster. (laughs) Marshall W. Harold's Chicken Shack Dumpster. That's a good one. David S. says, model airplane glue. Greg B. says, salmon. What's that scented candle you just lit? Jacob P. says, Jamaican love. Chuck, if you can read my comment on the air, you and I can be Jamaican love tonight, too. (laughs) What? (laughs) I don't know. Shane M. says, the last chip at the craps table. <laughs> that was Shane M. Shane M. R.H. says, arson and insurance fraud. Pete V. says, candle shop scent. <laughs> Jessica B. says, I don't know. It came from this Jelly Belly gift boozled, uh, bean boozled gift set. It looks like it might be vanilla, but it might be spoiled milk. <coughs> Dare T. says, oh, to burnt flesh of ruling class. Mm. What's that scented candle you just lit? Nick A. said, hey, how did my FBI agent get assigned this question from hell? He's overworked enough. (laughs) Andrew K. says, existential dread with hints of old beer and just a slight taint of optimism. (laughs) Christine M. says, the tears of my anxiety as I ride out this latest wave of late stage capitalism. (laughs) Evan D. says, he who smelt it, dealt it, brah. Chandler H. says, yellow vest, the smell of burning cars and bourgeoisie. Joshua B. says, there go the hopes and dreams of Charles Lister. (laughs) What's that scented candle you just lit? Uh, the guard H says, I don't know. Smells like a candle to me. David G says, brimstone. <laughs> Dare T also said, oh, the dripping blood of slicey boy. Wow. Andrew T said, Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore's napalm victory. Smells best in the mor- morning like a fresh pot of coffee. Mike A said, rhino gland. <laughs> Lawrence C says, winter house burner. <laughs> Ryan K said, wax scented. Mark R said, fart enhancer jim p says early retirement randall m says fart be gone a lot of farts going on in our listening audience uh what's that scented candle you just lit andrea j says tnt warren l says strawberry shortcakes underpants why do you ask (laughs) we're gonna get in trouble for that one so disturbing Uh, matt h says bonfire james bonfire gorilla g said um that's actually my old mattress jack b said burnt rubber Zach E. says, NYC in summertime, a.k.a. a melting wax museum. Gregory M. says, fake plastic trees. Dennis H., soylent green. And Amy M. says, money to burn. What's that scented candle you just lit? Matt M. said, that's none of your beeswax. (laughs) Dan O. said, freshly sharpened guillotine. Guillotine, sorry. Nick E. said, soiled summer linen. Uh, Austin H. says, it's my... Plausible deniability for smoking weed scented candle. There you go. For God's sake, that took a long time. Uh, Matt H. said, curtains. 
Uh, Chris M says, A tinge of hell. Alexandra C, very timely Alexandra C, I'm looking at you, said, uh, Deviled Egg. <laughs> uh, via Twitter, we had a couple. Uh, <laughs> Ye Hoke said, CBD infused blood of the bourgeoisie. And Companero X, Hex said, Air de Guillet uh, Jean. Finally, uh, oh wait, that was the same. I guess Ronaldo posted again about his damn birds in the tomato sauce. <laughs> I, th- I think that's all of them. Let me uh, just refresh on Twitter to make sure. Yeah, that's it. All right, so the ones I liked, uh, let's see, let me repeat this again. Uh, first of all, my response to this week's question from hell, what's that scented candle you just lit? It's a it's a crappy re-gift that really stinks, but my in-laws are visiting for the holidays, and we need to cover up the smell of weed. So that makes this week's uh, winner for the question from hell. Let's see. I liked Max I saying that the scented candle, the scent is victory. Pete V saying sunless void. Marshall's Harold's Chicken Shack Dumpster. Shane M, the last chip at the crap table. Matt M saying none of your beeswax. Very, very clever. But I am going to give it to Alexandra C for saying deviled eggs because that means that she's listening live right now. Alexandra. All you have to do is send us a message via Facebook with your mailing address, and we will send you President Lula da Silva's new book. Thank you so much for playing along during the question from hell. Thanks, everyone, for coming out to our annual This Is Hell holiday office party this past Wednesday. We had a uh, huge crowd. Lots of listeners got to meet each other. The pop-up shop was going upstairs, as well as the art gallery and our swag store. Lots of traffic upstairs. The food uh, from the three-legged taco food truck up front was incredible. Their, their food was really, really good. 2017 Bourbon County Proprietors was delicious. We really had a great time celebrating this season with all of you. And don't forget, like our annual anniversary party in July, our holiday office party is an annual event. So if you joined us at either this year, come back next year. And if you missed either, we hope to see you in 2019 at our annual 20th anniversary party happening in July and our annual holiday office party in December. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, we'll hear from our man on all things beer who will be here to talk about beer in our annual final segment of the year here on This Is Hell. Not to fear, it's the year in beer. Finally, we have the final moment of truth for 2018 with Jeff Dorchin. And this time, Jeff can't win for losing, can't lose for winning. All that stuff. Plus, we want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell, sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to listener feedback. I'm not too sure. And what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Alex already touched on that a little bit. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Alex, it's time for beer. Uh, yeah, it's not time for that theme just yet, though. Oh, okay, I see. <laughs> Still right. trying to figure something out. All right, well, let's just get right to this. So we're, whenever I'm about to go on vacation, first of all, Michael, look at your handsome face. 
when uh, whenever I am about to go on vacation, I pregame by talking to our beer correspondent, Michael Roper, co-proprietor of the Hopley, 5148 North Clark Street, right at the border of the Andersonville neighborhood here in Chicago. The Hop Leaf has received many accolades, including being a winner of a 2016 Time Out Chicago Bar Award as one of the city's best bars. Hop, Hop Leaf was awarded Michelin's Bib Gourmand Award as well. And Thrillist.com named Hop Leaf one of the best 11 bars in all of Chicago. You can find out more at Hopleaf.com. So what's new about you? What's going on at the bar right now? What's your big deal? Oh, wait. This is why we're building our own studios, because it wouldn't have taken 20 seconds. God, love the song. And the words. They're very thought-provoking. You know this a Lennon-McCartney song? Do you know that? Uh, Turn on your mic. It is on. It is? Yes. Uh, uh, are you hearing uh, Michael's voice? Because I'm not hearing it. Uh, it's not good. Uh, okay. Give me one second. All right. Uh, I don't know. We're going to see what happens. He's having a, a difficulty with your mic. Well, let me just tell people this. So, uh... Next two weeks, I will not be here airing a live four-hour This Is Hell on WNUR. Instead, Alex will be hosting Best of This Is Hell broadcast the next two Saturdays. I'll be back in studio here on Saturday, January 12th. In the meantime, you will be able to hear me on Patreon podcasts of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. You want him to switch to another mic? Uh, yeah. Uh, could you go to your right, Michael, this... to either of those two mics? I'll turn them both on right now. This one. Uh, this one. Oh, dude, we're missing mics. Is, is, yeah, no, that's oh, not right. Here, let me try that one. Yeah, it's, it's on here. It's no, on. no, nothing, Alex. You might have to. That have is really weird. These mics are on. Yeah. 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 Mine's on. Do you want to switch them over to? Uh, you want them to go over to your side? Yeah, that'll work. All right. We're, th- we're throwing you out of here now. Now you got to go over to the other side. Oh, Sorry about that, Michael. I know. I hate this. I don't know why our, our, all of our mics are missing and unplugged and unwired, but we will fix all of this in the very near future. So, yeah, so I am going to go to Michigan for the holidays. So uh, later on, I'll be. You just unplugged it. Thank you. <laughs> So uh, I'll be going to Michigan for the holidays. As uh, So, Michael, uh, later I will be asking you, Michael, uh, what Michigan beers I should be looking for. And if listeners have any suggestions for Michigan beers while I'm in Michigan for the holidays, uh, DM Alex on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, and Alex will run those by myself and Michael toward the end of Michael's upcoming report. Uh, so keep that in mind, Michael. Uh, good Michigan beers. Also, I'm going to be asking you about your favorite beer this year. I'll tell you mine right now. It's the Founders Bourbon Barrel Aged Imperial Red IPA Dankwood. So that's two years in a row for Founders as my favorite beer of 2017. was Because in 2017, I had their Bourbon Barrel Aged Imperial IPA Doom which I actually liked more, and I am not the biggest Founders fan, although, to be honest, I really don't have a favorite brewery right now. Maybe that's something I'll be asking Michael later as well. So uh, when we've had you on as the final guest on this uh, as hell every year, Michael, you give us a report. You call the year in beer. Let's start with 300 breweries closing in 2018. How big of a deal is that? Uh, I I think that it's um, a sign of... The times, it's it's really inevitable. It would not surprise me if we see a similar uh, situation in 2019. Um, you know, of course, while 300 breweries closed, um, more than 300 breweries opened this year. 
Uh, how many will survive into the next year is up in the air. But, um, you know, there is a bit of a saturation of breweries. Um, it, there's some interesting things going on. Um, this year was the largest decline in domestic beer shipments in over 60 years. Wow. Um, and one-third of all craft breweries reported that they had declining sales in 2018. Um I think that um, there's there's many many things that are you know involved in this. Um, people are drinking less but better. You know when you drink beers that have a lot of flavor and perhaps a little more alcohol, you don't drink five of them. They don't. Maybe you don't. You know maybe you have two and you're satisfied. Um, the other thing is that there is. Um, competition from other types of beverages um the liquor industry has gotten really smart about um packaging pre-mixed cocktails and they have become pretty popular uh, cider has you know is still doing really well uh wine consumption in the united states is up um and then um, I think I might have mentioned it before um there are more interesting uh non-alcoholic options um you know people that didn't drink who went to a bar with their friends used to you know they'd, they'd have a coke or something like that well now there are really interesting um flavors of tonic waters there are different things that use tea um there are you know things that are sophisticated and adult and non-alcoholic um people uh younger people are drinking less than younger people did when you know when i was 21 and 22 and 23 um i don't you know it's not necessarily a bad thing but it does impact uh an industry which is every single year putting out more and more product and some of that product isn't finding an audience let's get back to the brewery closing just for a second i do want to talk about alternative beverages but are are good breweries closing or is it just the bad ones um uh, no, it is not uh, just the bad ones. Um, that's what, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, the cream will rise to the top. Right. And, and, you know, the ones that don't deserve to uh, stay open because they don't make good product are going to close. But, in fact, some breweries that, you know, I mean, Green Flash, was they made good beer. Oh, yeah, that's right. <clears throat> and, you know, they're, uh, you know, they just made some really bad decisions about expansion and borrowing money and buying new equipment, and um, when they did make that expansion, there was not an audience. And, uh, you know, some some very old bre- uh, craft breweries like Mendocino and um, Smutty Nose, um, they went under this year. Uh, Arcadia went out of business in Michigan. Um, you know, Bader Brow came back for a minute in Chicago and failed miserably. Um, but you would chalk these all off to poor decision, business decision making, more than poor product. Um, you know, obviously, some breweries that don't make very interesting products right. are, are failing. Uh, but there are some people that are doing things right, but are having they're either closing or they're struggling because there's such a glut of product in the market. And you know, I can see it from my own uh, experience. I get offered beers, I mean, virtually every day, some 
one, some very earnest, you know, new brewery owner stops by at Hopleaf and drops off a few cans or bottles right. of their beer and with the hope that we will put it on tap. And, you know, some of this beer is pretty good. And, um, but, you know, I can't even, I can't even carry a small sampling of the very good. There's, there's so many very good breweries. Wow. Um, so there just isn't room for, you know, me to support every single brewery that makes good beer. And uh, there's a different business model for them. Uh, which is sort of opening the little neighborhood brewery where you don't your you know your business model or your aspiration isn't to be the next Sierra Nevada or even the next revolution. Your business model is to satisfy the thirst of people who live within six blocks of your uh, your brew pub. Right. So how often are you seeing good breweries? being bought up by some larger brewer and then failing and closing after purchase? Because we've talked about craft brewers losing their customers once they've been sold to bigger brewers in the past, so like Elysian and uh, Alaska, two beers that I was really looking forward to coming to uh, this region. And then when they finally did, they had been bought up. They were bought up by other uh, brewers, and they were really, really disappointing beers. So how often are you seeing good breweries being bought up sold to a larger brewer, and then they go out? Well, not very often. I mean, so far, I, I don't think that, that that trend has begun yet. It might. Um, I do think that some of the bigger breweries that bought smaller breweries um, have been disappointed that it didn't work out like they thought it would. Um, I think that um, because, I mean, I think all of those all those breweries are in the same market uh, as everybody else, and they're affected by these gigantic trends. Um, you know, uh, Goose Island uh, this past year, um, they had significant decline uh, in sales. And, and, I'm not, and I'm not talking in Chicago. I'm talking nationally. You know, the first few years after the purchase, I mean, Goose Island sales exploded because they were in every supermarket chain in the country. Um, but then after a while, um, they just became another beer on the shelf in, you know, in Kentucky and Tennessee and Oregon. And then it didn't really matter anymore. Um, so it's, you know, it's not selling like it, it did at first. Um, it's I, I, actually, I think that like companies like AB InBev, and Miller Coors um, are less interested in buying new breweries right now. So uh, you were talking before about alternative beverages contributing to the decline in beer drinking. You mentioned uh, cider, um, but these alternatives to beer—I mean, we've seen them come and go in the past. Uh, I remember Zima and wine spritzers. Are the new alternatives to beer? here to stay any longer than those past alternatives. And yes, I realize wine spritzers still exist, but they only exist in your aunt's refrigerator. So do you think these alternatives have any more legs than the past alternatives to beer did? I think I think some of them do. And uh, I think that um, they do because they're better than Zima, you know? <laughs> I mean, I mean, some of the things that came out in the past were really bad. And uh, some of the alternatives now are better. And, um, 
you know, not everybody likes beer. You know, beer does not please everybody every day. And now there are better alternatives. I mean, one of the sort of the quiet trends that, um, you know, terrifies uh, um, beer makers and whiskey uh, distillers is that there is a growing number of younger people who don't drink at all (laughs) or rarely drink. And um, that is another trend that um, has changed things. Um, and also it's, it's a terrifying thing for some, but it's also, um, making some people, um, get pretty excited is, you know, the cannabis becoming legal in more and more States and the likelihood that there will be cannabis infused beer like beverages is a new category that, you know, no one knows where it will go and how popular it will be or how lasting it will be. Will it take um, a big chunk out of the beer market, the wine market, the spirit market? We don't know, but it's something that in the next two or three years, it's going to be something we're all going to be watching really carefully. Have you ever had a cannabis-infused beer? I have not. I have. And how was it? Well... It tasted like grass, and I don't mean grass like marijuana. I mean like sod, like turf, (laughs) like lawn, like your yard. It was horrible, and my understanding is that the THC component of it wouldn't work because it's soluble in alcohol. Do you have any knowledge of any of that? Uh, You know, I I don't know. I I mean, I I suspect that... um, that there's going to be a lot of trial and error at, at you know, I know um, in Canada, two or three breweries are spending a lot of money on research to try to find a way to use uh, cannabis in a beer-like beverage that will actually taste good. And if they spend a lot of money and work on it long enough with some, you know, seasoned professionals, they'll probably come up with something that's pretty tasty that has that effect that, we want. Did beer simply get played out? Did craft beers finally experiment as much as they can, and now it all tastes the same? Well, I, there is. I, I think that um, craft breweries, it, in their you know sometimes desperation to find uh, something different to find an audience, um, have tried all kinds of things. And uh, many of them did stick, but a lot of them didn't. Um, and, you know, it's getting harder to do something really different. And what that's actually done, uh, and I see it all the time at the bar, is that more people are looking for something. They're, they're like, give me a beer that tastes like beer. Uh, you know, not cloudy, not, uh, you know, not a pastry beer, not a pumpkin beer, but beer. Which, pastry beer. Well, there's that's a big category. I know, I know. It's a it's big crazy. category, you know, and not one of my favorites. No. But um, I think that people, that's why people are drinking more lager now. It's why Pilsners have become uh, pretty popular. It's why breweries like Sierra Nevada are sort of relaunching in their marketing, their iconic pale ale, um, because these are things that, you know, people are sort of going back to the roots a little bit. Um, the, you know, it's not going to stop some people from experimenting, 
Um, but I think that, you know, in some ways people are tired of the, the fetishization of beer and, um, the beer nerd factor. Um, and you know, a lot of things that intimidate people about wine, um, like they're afraid to order the wrong wine because they'll be made to look stupid or something. Um, that kind of thing is happening to beer and, and it's too bad because, you know, it's made it, um, intimidating for some people. Um, and I think that there's maybe a, like I said, back to the roots. Let's, let's drink beer that tastes like beer. Sure. Back to the roots. Okay. So, and a lot of those people, you, I mean, I know you guys don't sell PBR. Nope. Uh, but you used to sell Huber. Used to have a you know a low end beer that uh, people would buy. Uh, the people who um, m- might be trying to go back to that old timey beer are those the people who I think they were marketing PBR too. And now PBR is going to go under, correct? Uh, no, no. Uh, PBR. It was a very interesting little story that kind of blew up more than it should have about PBR. You know, there is no Pabst Brewery. Right. Um, it's a little marketing company with four or five people in an office that um, it's the Pabst Brewing Company. But they they just bought the name. They bought Pabst Blue Ribbon. They bought the logo. The beer that they make is not even the same recipe as the original Pabst Blue Ribbon. Um, and it's just a generic um, American lager brewed under contract at Miller. Well, the folks at Miller, when that contract was about to expire, said, we're brewing something for another company that competes head-to-head with us. You know, we're selling less Miller High Life because people are choosing to drink Pabst Blue Ribbon. Right. And we don't get enough money out of that sale. Most of the money goes to the Pabst Brewing Company, even though we brew the beer. So they wanted to renegotiate and say, like, if we're going to make this, we want to make a lot more money. And the past people were like, well, then, you know, we're not making enough money to make, you know, this worthwhile. Um, so it, the, the talks got a little testy. And um, in the end, uh, I'm not sure what the details were, but everybody seems to be happy now. Miller is going to continue brewing Pabst. They're going to make a little more money. The Pabst Brewing Company will make a little less. And the beer will still be on the shelves. Uh, and uh, I've had the PBR APA. Have you had the PBR APA yet? Uh, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, it's not that interesting. No, no, but it's not as bad as PBR. And more importantly, I have not had this. Have you had PBR Easy? No. That's their new light beer, in case somebody's wondering. And oh, you, can, you can find it at all your stores because nobody's buying it. <laughs> right. So there it is sitting there waiting for you. Now, I did have a flavor of beer that I haven't had in a really long time. That might be the kind of flavor of beer that you're talking about, going back to just beer tasting like beer. And it's a flavor I don't like, but this version of it was fantastic, and I really, really enjoyed it this week. It's a delicious cream ale from Scorched Earth Brewing in Algonquin called Hickster. Have you ever had anything from Scorched Earth? I know that they, they're they not coming into Chicago until next year. Oh, no, yeah, they, they, they actually are in the city now. Oh, okay. Um, they, you know, it's, you know, what a timely question. You know, you must really do uh, deep research. I do, I do. Uh, I walk down the stairs and drink at a bar. <laughs> so there, there was a salesperson from Scorched Earth in, Earth in Hopleaf, um, I don't know, a week or so ago, and we had a bunch of samples, and we tried them, and, you know, they were pretty good. 
Um, and uh, I'm not sure. I know we, we ordered one of their beers that's sitting in our cooler right now. I don't think it's tapped yet. But in the next week, you're going to see some scorched earth uh, beer at Hopleaf. When was the last time you had a good cream ale? Uh, you know, a long time ago. I, I mean, um, you know, uh, we carried, um, if you go back in the deep history of Hopleaf, um, there was a cream ale from McCausland in uh, Montreal that we carried on tap called uh, McCausland Smooth Ale. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And, um, you know, kind of, it pulled, they pulled out of the market years ago, but in the maybe the first five years of Hopleaf, that was one of the most popular beers we had. But uh, it was one of those beers that, you know, because we have blinders on at Hopleaf, we said, God, this beer was just killing it, but it wasn't selling anywhere else. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're the only bar in the country selling this. So they pulled out of the market. I had an alternative to beer. Um, have you had the Lagunitas Hoppy Water? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> what you? I, I'm curious. What do you think, man? I, I didn't like it at all. No. Do you? Th- I know that you're not a mixed drink person. Do you think it would work with a mixed drink? It, it might, you know. Um, and and just because I don't like it doesn't mean that it has no future. Obviously, there's things that I don't like that millions of people drink. Um, some of those popular alcoholic beverages and non-alcoholic beverages in the world um, uh, are not my favorites at all. Yeah, I was just more fascinated by it than anything else. Like, I couldn't decide if I liked it or not. It was just like it was such a weird... It, people, it just t- tastes like tap water with hops in it. Yeah. It was the most bizarre thing. Um, it also, uh, so there are a ton of mixers from Revolution Brewing of their anti-hero IPAs that you can only get in stores. I shared some of those with you when we went to that Kurz, uh restaurant earlier this year, Jebek Jalou. Yep, yep. Uh, they have IPAs made with Mosaic, Cascade, Centennial, Galaxy, Northwest, Citra Hops, all sorts. There's like over a dozen of these. Uh, they have one out uh, for the holidays that's called Brute anti-hero and has this champagne flavor again a flavor i generally don't like but it's really really good now you can't get those beers i don't think you can get those at bars is that unique of revolution to distribute to stores stuff that they don't distribute to bars well uh we get most of the um the hero series ipas um they are you know they're very limited um, they are allocated to their best accounts, but we, we have tapped several of those beers and they are universally really good. I mean, I think that, you know, revolution doesn't get as much credit as it deserves for, you know, people that like, you know, really hoppy IPAs. Um, they're one of the great brewers of hoppy IPAs. I mean, they really kill it. And we do we do actually get those beers on tap, but I think that um, not many um, bars do. Right. Uh, so, um, so some of those things maybe they're not going to be in your neighborhood uh, tavern, but you're you're going to have to buy them at the store. Um, Did you try the brute antihero yet? Yes. What do uh, you think? I like I like it. I mean, and and I I have to say that that sort of um, dry that you know bone dry. Um, you know, spritzy IPA, not not my favorite in general, but 
you know, you can kind of trust them to figure out a way to make something really good. You mentioned in an email to us this week that a brewing equipment giant is now in receivership and hop growers are feeling the pain. Is this DME, the Prince Edward Island-based equipment manufacturer with facilities in B.C. and South Carolina? Is that the one you're talking about? That is the one. So this is from the Toronto Star on December 3rd. According to court filings, DME has built equipment for more than 1,600 breweries in 70 countries. How significant is this loss for breweries? Will there be a slowdown in production because DME is going out of business? Well, there are quite a few breweries that are either expanding or new breweries being built that sign contracts with DME that are probably in a panic mode right now because they're not going to they're not going to get their equipment, and so um, you know there's there's a lot of projects that are uh, scrambling to find uh, other equipment. Um, it they are you know they're really huge now there are, certainly are alternatives uh, around the world and you know the Chinese are making a lot of brewing equipment but um, it's it's just the sign of the times that um, that uh, you know as breweries start to struggle a little bit um, that spreads up and down the line uh, I do think um, one of the th- reasons that there are troubled is that when you have 300 breweries um, closing, uh, what happened to that equipment? <laughs> you know, it right. went on the secondary market. Um, look at what happened at Baderbrow here in Chicago. That brewery, um, you know, it had state-of-the-art equipment, and it lasted, I don't even think it made it a year before they failed. Uh, and uh they had a bankruptcy sale, and they sold that stuff at pennies on a dollar. They had a brand-new uh, canning line, which lots of breweries want a canning line. Uh, why would you buy a new one when you can buy one from a year-old brewery for, you know, 10 cents on a dollar? That's really interesting. So so uh, is, the, is, is this evidence that the brewing equipment industry was or even still is too centralized, too dominated by one company? Um, you know, there are, there, you know, there's tons of brewing equipment uh, manufacturing still done in Europe. And, and the Japanese, or sorry, the, the Chinese uh, have gotten into the, um, into the mix too. So there, it's not like there's only one company. There's quite a few. But uh, DME was one of the big ones. And they, um, because they, they were high quality they were a little less money, maybe, than the German companies. Um, they attracted a lot of business with new uh, new breweries, and um, but not quite enough to be profitable. And and I don't know, you know, I don't know some of the, you know, I don't know if they borrowed a lot of money to expand, because they have expanded quite a bit. Uh, I don't know, uh, maybe maybe they are suffering from the same thing. Lots of other manufacturers are suffering from. It's you know it's hard to compete on price with the Chinese, um, and maybe they tried to and failed. I, I'm not sure the exact reasons why right now at this time, uh, DME is failing. So, Michael, I'm going to be going to Michigan. I mentioned earlier that I asked our listeners if they could send uh, beer suggestions for Michigan uh, to me. But are there any beers that you would strongly suggest I check out while I'm in Michigan? Well, you know, I haven't gotten a lot of new uh, um, breweries from Michigan coming into the Chicago market. Um, 
you know, we, you know, we we're seeing more, much more local stuff here. Um, not a lot of um, it. It's been a long time since somebody came in with a new Michigan beer for me to try. So I'd be interested actually in hearing what I have some to, of the ones right. that you've got, I'll, because I, I would bet that most of them aren't available in Chicago and I have not necessarily tried them. Yeah, I'm going to be at the Beer Depot in Ann Arbor in a little while, so I will go get you some beers, sir. I promise that. And uh, so do you have a favorite beer for this year? You know, I I tried some beers um, from a brewery in uh, the middle of nowhere, uh, uh, Illinois, called the Scratch Brewery. Okay. Uh, so this is a, you know... It's the most some of the most interesting beers that I tried all year. They um, uh, this is like a guy that's like a modern hippie who lives on a huge plot of uh, um, there's forest land. He's got some farmland, and he is a forager. And uh, his beers uh, he uses foraged ingredients oh, crazy. Uh, for. Um, you know, to flavor his beers, and um, he, uh, I just think it was like some of the coolest beer I had. It was something that was truly different. Um, I had one uh, yesterday, in fact, with some uh, wild blackberries that he uh, picked on his land, and, um, but he, in the winter, you know, he goes out and, and uses different, uh, he pulls some plants out and uses roots and you know things that nobody else uses in beer, um, at least for the last you know three thousand years or so. Um, and uh, I would you know it's hard to find this beer. It, uh, I know Beer Temple carries uh, carries their stuff in bottles, but I would say that's the most interesting beer that I tried all year. Um, certainly, there's some more you know some easier to find beer that's uh, pretty cool. Um, I'm I'm really liking the. Um, I'm very excited about the stuff that's going on at Dovetail with their Lambic program. Oh, I don't know about that. So, you know, while they are a lager brewery, um, and they've sort of established that as their, um, you know, their mainstay, um, secretly, sort of <laughs> upstairs, they, um, they have barrels, and they're making like a an American Lambic because they have a cool ship where they allow outside yeast to come in, wild yeast, uh, and ferment the beer. And then they put it in casks just like they do in Belgium. And what makes this interesting to me is that, you know, a lot of American brewers and American beer drinkers and certainly people in Belgium said the one style of beer that, you know, is never going to be able to be duplicated in America. You know, you craft brewers have figured out how to make you know, British-style uh, IPAs, and you've figured out how to make saisons um, and German lagers and all these things, but you're never going to be able to make a Lambic. Well, uh, this week I sampled some single-barrel uh, unblended Lambics um, that are right from the cask there, and I, if I close my eyes, I could have been in the uh, Seine Valley in Belgium. Wow. At uh, Bone or Dreyfontainen, because these things tasted just like that. Wow. And you know, because lambic beer really depends on uh, you know very local yeast that are in the air. 
I find it kind of interesting because their brewery is right in between the Metra tracks right. and the CTA tracks. <laughs> so every time a train goes by, it raises up all this dust and stuff. Well, somehow um, that stuff um, settles down on the uh, cool ship uh, with the uh, the wart, and um, uh, you're getting something that tastes remarkably like this very, very local, uh, distinct style of beer from Belgium. And so you're going to see that beer in in very small quantities pop up over the next few years because it's a beer that it takes about two years to make. I had a really good Kolsch from there recently. Uh, so uh, shout out to Russell and Hagen over there at... Uh, uh, dovetail. Uh, anything else you want to mention before I let you go, sir? Did you bring any beer with you? You know, today I brought a little container of water with me. <laughs> That's it. Because I've been battling this sinus monster, <laughs> and I was afraid. Oh my God! If I, you know, if I start coughing, that could ruin your whole show. You know. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. It was the microphone dying that would ruin well, the whole. Yeah. The, well, the technical thing here is, you know, I don't know. It's kind of. It's Sir, almost like we need our own studios, isn't it? I think so. I think that you're ready, but you're 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 building the this is hell skyscraper downtown, that's, right? That's right. That's exactly what I'm. Hey, by the way, one thing I want to mention to you real quick. Uh, so you were talking about uh, drinking beer for the first time. I don't know. At one point we were saying that. Um, one of the things that always bugs me is that people say, oh, yeah, I didn't like beer. I had to get used to the taste of beer. I remember my first taste of beer. I think I was like six and it was a Goebbels. And I loved it. Did you like beer the first time you tasted it? Nope. Really? Nope. It was hams. Uh, my dad was a hams drinker. And, uh, you know, my dad, I, I can remember, like, I don't know, I was maybe six or something. And uh, he opened a can of hams and, and poured it. And, and I was kind of interested. And he said, no, here, you know, he passed it over to me. And I, like, I thought I was going to die. Um, uh, so I didn't, you know, I would say that it took me a while to warm up to beer and I'm kind of embarrassed at some of the early beers that I liked. Um, you know, when I was in high school, um, Schlitz was like really like the, the cool guys drank Schlitz. Oh, I had to drink uh Stroh's because it was bohemian fired and my dad felt an allegiance to that. Well, when I, when I, once I was like really 21 and drinking, you know, at bars, although, um, I was lucky enough to be, to turn 18, uh, four days after 18 year old drinking passed oh, in wow. 1972. So I could actually legally go to bars when I was still in high school. <laughs> Uh, but once I got into, you know, being a more regular drinker, uh, Stroh's did win me over. I, I drank nothing but Stroh's for many, many years. And I still haven't had the new Stroh's. I have, and it, you know, they don't really even make an attempt <laughs> to make it like the original Stroh's. I mean, they're not, it's not fire brewed. It doesn't use the same recipe or anything. No bohemians the, are involved? No, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like so many beers that I drink today. It's clean. It's well made. There's no bad notes, um, but it's not very interesting, you know. Uh, and disappointingly, it misses that one thing that Stroh's actually had that was unique when they were still brewed in Detroit. And that fire brewing was a thing. Right. Because it created hot spots in those old German copper kettles. And um, that those hot spots uh, actually burned some of them all and created sort of a caramelized sugar flavor that was in the background uh, of the the flavor, and it was it was different, and 
I thought was delicious. All right, Michael, have a happy new year. I'm looking forward to seeing you in 2019 back here in studio with us or in our new studios above Carrie's. Thank you so much for all of your contributions this year, uh, sir. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Live from the good old U.S. of A. where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell in a few minutes during a moment Sorry of truth. Jeff's, uh, Jeff is going to, wait, I forgot. He, Jeff can't win for losing, and he can't lose for winning. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick out from our site. Again, thisishell.com when you click on support. If you know somebody who's a fan of This Is Hell or should be a fan of This Is Hell and you have some last-minute shopping to do, thisishell.com, click on support. Thanks this week goes out to the tithing-like commitment of Adrienne. Thanks to the very, very kind support of Gwendolyn and John. And Michael supported This Is Hell so he could get a newly redesigned This Is Hell t-shirt. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week. And in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration, your support will be needed more than ever. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, during a moment of truth, Jeff can't win for losing and can't lose for winning. We also want to thank some people for sharing the show online. And we'll tell you what's happening on the next uh, next week's final episode of This Is Hell for 2018. Manufacturing descent since 1996, This Is Hell. Alex, I know you have half on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Some men are intimidated by strong women. This has been a glib, empty, unself-aware dose of pablum on the left for at least the last 30 years. A moment's reflection reveals its nonsensical nature. A moment's reflection is something frowned upon on the left and lets us reflection of an acceptable dogma or bland agreement. Yes, strong people intimidate weaker people, but you're not being woke or clever by or anything remotely laudable by pointing it out. Capitalism exacerbates that dynamic, incidentally. Your strength is both increased and rendered more intimidating by capitalism. Consider that, if you can. Yes, I'm intimidated by strong women. Why shouldn't I be? Like strong men... They can reject me socially, hurt me physically, humiliate me, or merely exert power over me to my detriment. I'm supposed to feel ashamed of being intimidated? Blow me! I've got enough negative feelings just feeling intimidated. I'm not going to judge myself for it, especially not by your criteria. Yes, I've intimidated others, and I'm not proud of it. There are ways to defuse the intimidation dynamic if you want to, if it's important to you, but it takes work and some humility on your part. You have to be secure in yourself, and yet humble at the same time. That's the burden of the strong. That's how you see beyond your privilege. Don't worry. I'm not very good at it either. This is the duty, in my opinion, of everyone with privilege, whether white, male, rich, beautiful, or otherwise gifted, exalted, or accomplished. The people who understand this are incredible. You know them when they reach out from their strengths and lift you up simply through the act of reaching. Not everyone has the ability, and even fewer want to have it. It's a singular strength, the ability to be humble and open about one's strengths. 
because we live in a culture that rewards bullying and egoism and not caring. Winning. We're all about winning, and we have a very narrow definition of victory. But in some ways, that's the kind of animals we are. We jockey for prestige. We cultivate the best people as friends. We learn the tricks of making ourselves useful and helpful or trusted or admired or highly regarded. And if we fail at these things, we lose. We become poor or lonely. In short, as a species, we are cliquish a-holes. We also congratulate ourselves on not being the types that are self-satisfied or hypocritical. We fool ourselves into believing that we are noble or correct or smart or kind. Not to say there aren't some of us who actually are noble or correct or smart or kind. Most people are at least one of those things at several points in their lives. But winning or being loved is relative. It's easy to misinterpret one's position in relation to others. Interpretation is key. It's not everything, but it's key. If you feel you've failed, you have indeed failed. If you feel you've succeeded, you have indeed succeeded. Who can tell you you're wrong? Oh, there are some easy gauges of success and failure, winning and losing. Like if you're trying to take over Europe and your armies are crushed in a shattering blitzkrieg, or if you are in a contest and fail to win, but even then it's possible to interpret a loss as a win as when a dishonorable society fails to acknowledge your worth. Sure, it's cool to win, but isn't it nobler to lose when the criteria are so ill-conceived and the judges so corrupt? And people can manipulate your feelings, make you feel you're winning when you're losing, or losing when you're winning. No one can make you feel bad about yourself, the pseudo-enlightened youth like to say, but that is false. Some people are masters at making others feel one way or another. I'd like to add, they're the real losers, but that's just my interpretation. It's fun when the mighty are brought low, but it wouldn't be any fun if intimidation, strength, fear, and despair weren't on some level real. Physical wounds are real. Poverty is real. Deprivation is real. Death is real. It's fun to say the true measure of strength is not how many are weaker than you, but how many you make stronger. But that's a load of crap, isn't it? We're not God. Can God make a person so strong that such a person could not destroy God? No. God's not strong or weak enough to do that. But humans can reach out to the weak, make them strong, and then be destroyed by them. The fact is, I'm afraid of everything all the time. I've lost, I'm a fool, and I've squandered what gifts I ever possessed. It's terrible. And yet, because I can emotionally rise above my obviously crushed and humiliated condition, I win. And if I can convey my winning state convincingly enough to you, you who lord it over me, well then, I can make you lose. We are abhorrent creations of a cruel, uncaring universe. Our resting state is discomfort. Our resting face is bitch. We are born to strive for satisfaction, but never to be satisfied for long. Ridiculous. And yet we are so good at failing to be satisfied and leaping for further satisfaction, like salmon leaping against the current to spawn, that we succeed at being that which we are created to be. We can't really fail at that, can we? I hope you're happy, universe. You have created us only to destroy us. What kind of loser does something like that? And as a habit yet, it's enough to make your head explode. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, Jeffy, how was your 2018? Oh, God, this was awful. <laughs> this was one of the worst years of my life. Uh, How about yours? 
I've had better years. I've also had worse years. 2006 is still, I still refer to it as 2000 sucks because eight very close friends of mine died that year. Eight people in one friggin' year. So 2000 sucks is still my standard bearer for worst year ever. So That's pretty bad. What are you going to do? I got to tell you, you know, uh, your conversation with, uh, with, with Mr. Roper there. Yeah. Um, I think that's uh, that's euphemistic to, to say that that people are tired of the beer fetish of beer fetishism, uh, and so that's why they're going to things like pilsners or giving up beer all the other. I think it's a hop fetishism. I think we're sick of the hop fetishism. At least I am, and you spouting off about your mosaics and <laughs> cascades, all these different hops you know about and can distinguish between with your palate. <laughs> yeah, I have a super palate. That's me. All right, Jeffy, it's going to be... Oh, Ham's was, Ham's was the first beer that I ever drank, too. And, did and I you... loved it. See? I'm telling you, man. The first thing I had... I'll... Dude, I will never forget. So, Stroh's is the beer of Detroit, and they had a crappy yeah. secondary beer called Goebbels, and all it was was older hops. <laughs> they went down the exact same line, and all of a sudden they just separated and went in their two different ways. And I will never forget my dad driving me to school one morning, driving me to high school. And all of a sudden he goes, he looks in his rearview mirror and he goes, you're going to be late. And I said, why? And he goes, they're selling Goebbels at the corner for four ninety nine a case. Four ninety nine a case. Yeah, well, Cincy used to be like 11 bucks Cincy, oh my God, Cincy. I was reminded of <laughs> Christian Morlane the other day, which is the Cincinnati beer that was a cream ale. All right, Jeff. Well, I know the flavor. Wait, one second. I know the flavor that I really liked in hams. What's that? It's, it's the flavor of a slightly skunked Grolsch beer. Oh. Remember Grolsch? Yeah. With a little... Little, little tapper on the top that people would use to uh, as a roach clip, but then they would use the bottles so they could brew their own beer, despite the fact that Grolsch was horrible. Yeah. Yeah, it was awful. That's the ticket. All right, Jaffe, All right. I will talk to you in three weeks on January 12th. That will be your next live moment of truth. All right, I'm going to hibernate till then. All right, stay beautiful. I will. You too. Live from lands stolen from the natives, this is hell. The best way for you to get the good word out about the evil content of This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This Is Hell has a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to the people who publicly shared the show or interviews or correspondence reports this week. Lots more shared, but many choose to do so anonymously and considering social media's sharing of data. That's a really good idea. Thanks this week goes out to the people we know who shared the show. Julie, John John, Nick, James, Johnny, Tom, Jan, Matt B, Will, Seamus, Fergus, Malachi, Dan, Robert, Eli, Jessica, Rob, Di, Daniel, Virginia, Michael T., Michael D., Gorilla Gramophonics, everybody who shared the list of our favorite books featured on This Is Hell in 2018, including past guests Ken Silverstein, Adam, George, and Mark. And finally, thanks for sharing goes to Rich, Yasha Levin, Pete, Jeffrey, Matt M., and Anarcha Media. And thanks to everyone for sharing This Is Hell, however you shared the show, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or SoundCloud or whatever, however you shared This Is Hell, in 2018, 
We really appreciate it. If you want to help hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the good word about the evil content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. Let me go back into the listener feedback for a while, for a couple minutes. As we're closing up our final live broadcast of 2018, we will be back on air next week with a best of This Is Hell. Tarver emailed us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com saying, please interview somebody from Extinction Rebellion, maybe even Roger Hallam, H-A-L-L-A-M, himself. Yes, Tarver, Alex had been uh, looking into getting a representative of this movement on for a few weeks, so maybe when we get back after the new year, we will be talking to somebody from the Extinction Rebellion. For those who don't know, uh, the Extinction Rebellion is an international social movement of nonviolent action in order to minimize species extinction and avert climate breakdown, and it's been growing intensely in the UK. Ivar writes about our interview with Michael Denzel Smith on black intellectuals being forced by white gatekeepers to only discuss the violence, tragedy, and suffering of African-American life and nothing more. Ivar writes, great interview that really further clarified the Harper's Magazine peach where it originally was published. He was good at, Michael was good at staying on message with his point in his article which is where it should be. However, I was struck by the example concerning Mark Lamont Hill's silencing by CNN of the larger question of the delegitimization of the boycott and divestment uh, you know, movement, the BDS movement, and criticism of Israel in general, and thereby any support for Palestinians. Denzel Smith used it as an example of the limits of discourse allowed to black intellectuals, which is fair since, as he made clear, black intellectuals are engaged by white media to explain aspects of their own community, not discuss issues outside of their lane. But the truth is that everyone is getting shut down on criticizing Israel or supporting Palestine. 27 states have laws against BDS, with some going so far as to force individual contractors to sign loyalty oaths. The Texas-Palestinian-American speech pathologist, for for example, um, and we shared that article online on our Facebook page. If you want to hear about the Texas-Palestinian-American speech pathologist who was forced to quit her job as a teacher simply as a speech pathologist simply because she refused to take to uh, declare loyalty to Israel. Congress is debating a law on, on against uh, BDS, says Ivar. Any support for the Palestinian cause by Jeremy Corbyn and Labor is being weaponized to tar them as anti-Semitic, which is the charge lobbed against anyone who dares criticize anything about Israel. This seemed like an elephant in the room, which I hope that someone would have commented on during the interview. Since no one is permitted to criticize Israel, how does this differ for a black intellectual? Is it even more forbidden? All the best wishes, Ivar. That's a very good point, Ivar, and I thank you for mentioning it. Uh, sometimes I get wrapped up so much in the next question that I'm about to ask that I'll miss what should be easy follow-ups, and I promise to try and do a better job on follow-ups in 2019. Uh, M sends us a guest suggestion. I think this is from Australia. Dear Chuck, this is hell is one of the best parts of my week. Thanks for all you do. It's confronting and thought-provoking and funny. I have a book recommendation and an interview I'd love to hear on This Is Hell. Dark Emu is the book, and it's by Bruce Pascoe. 
It's one of the best books I've read about settler colonialism and Western thought and how racist assumptions have led to the dismal and uh, denigration, the dismissal, sorry, and denigration of the Australian indigenous people, the oldest living civilizations on earth. It's a story about agriculture and enlightenment, philosophy, about technology and the environment, and a staggeringly ancient care for a country. There was so many, there were so many lands stolen from the natives. And this book is an incredible insight into what's that's meant for Australia. Hope you like it. If you end up reading this aloud, please refer to me as M. M suggests Dark Emu. That's good enough and cryptic enough for me. Consider it done, M. We'll have the author of Dark Emu on the show in 2019. Didn't get to all of the lingering emails and our listener feedback, but we got to a lot of them. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Alex, do you want to tell people what's happening on the next two best of This Is Hells, or have you already done that enough? I did that when you were taking care of a technical difficulty in the bathroom, but one of them is going to be from 2018, and one of them is going to be from uh, whatever year Occupy happened. Was that 2011? Yeah. I want to thank everybody for being on this week's show. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. Thanks to our beer correspondent, Michael Roper. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for delivering a moment of truth. Thanks to Tony Wood uh, for talking to us about Russia without Putin. Again, if you know anybody who is just fixated on Rachel Maddow and MSNBC and Russia, get this book for them so they can have a better understanding of Russia. Again, Tony Wood author of Russia Without Putin. Sociologist Dylan Riley was on the show. He's the author of the New Left Review article, What is Trump? If during the holidays some family member of yours says Trump is a fascist, say, eh, actually he's a patrimonialist, which will blow their minds, and then have them read the article by Dylan Riley, What is Trump? Thanks for an entire year of great coverage of what's happening in Brazil from our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Brian Meir. You can find all of his work at Telesur as well as Brazil Wire, his Telesur article of late, How the U.S. Left Failed Brazil, about how Jacobin dropped the ball on the Brazilian left. And then he has another article that he co-wrote about how The Guardian did the exact same thing. So make sure you check out all of Brian's work. And thanks to the author of Keywords, The New Language of Capitalism, John Patrick Leary. Find out more about that book by going to keywordsforcapitalism.com. Book's not available at Amazon right now, but it's available for half off at Haymarket Books. Uh, And uh, yeah, if you know a writer or an editor, uh, they will absolutely love this book and the way he deep dives into the words and vocabulary of capitalism. This week's Hangover Cure is Banana Shake with Honey. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. The only way to get over all the problems that we have mentioned to you, that we've discussed, that we've revealed on This Is Hell in 2018, is to sit down in the lotus position, turn your palms towards the sky, focus on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and say the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.